VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, March the 3rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is producing this come on with an edition of Open Line. So, if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. Well, as Dave Williams remarked when we were having a chat here prior to the show, the fact that it's such a beautiful blue sky, sunny day, calm and crisp, it's remarkable what a little bit of sun and feeling a little bit of the heat from the sun does for your overall mood. So Dave was absolutely right because I felt the exact same way as I was out and about this morning. So let's go. Interesting. So Time Magazine has long been one of the most lauded magazines in the world. It was 100 years ago today that Time Magazine debuted, founded by Britton Haddon and Henry R. Luce in New York City. Time Europe is published in London, covers the Middle East and Africa. There's also editions that cover Latin America and Asia. So until the late 60s, the magazine cover always depicted a single person. Time also had a very distinctive writing style known as Time Style. It was pretty acerbic at times, and it also led to coining a variety of words, including socialite, guesstimate, televangelist, pundit, and tycoon. So, of course, some of the the Person of the Year editions, it's most popular and it's most widely sold, features those who have had an interesting year, some fame, but it also covers good and evil. Some of the people who have been featured as the Person of the Year include Hitler, uh, Corazon Aquino, Walter Chrysler, and, of course, some others who were much more contributors to the world. All right. Week number two at the Canada Winter Games is winding down. But here we go. Gold medal alert. Maddox Glover. He won a gold medal in the men's Special Olympics Level 2 figure skating. He's from CBS, so congratulations to 13-year-old Maddox Glover. The gold medal for you, young man. Congratulations. Terrific stuff. Uh, read an interesting story. This morning, I was looking back at the first entry into the women's ice hockey competition at the Canada Winter Games, and it was in 1991. The story goes on to tell the tale based on some of the players who were participating that year. Let's see if I can find that here. I had it right in front of me. Okay, here we go. So it was uh, Marion Druken, of course, whose brother Harold went on to play in the NHL. Also from goalie Sandy Noseworthy and Kim Stone of Brian's Cove. Now, back in 1991, women's hockey was really in its infancy in this province. So some of the players had only been playing hockey for a couple of years and then find themselves on ice at the Canada Winter Games. Didn't fare so well insofar as winning any games or scoring many goals. But it's interesting to look at how far we've come in female hockey. We've produced some terrific female hockey players from this province, of course. And so the women, I think they played a qualifying game last night against New Brunswick. I can't find the score, but if you have it close by, let me know what you find. And some of the young players, of course, come by their skills, honestly, as they say. So Brad Guju has a couple of nephews uh, curling at the games, Parker and Spencer Tipple. So good luck to the Tipple rink as they uh, compete up in Prince Edward Island. And this is interesting. Brad Guju, of course, the defending Briar champion. They're back in London, Ontario to defend his title this go-around as Team Canada. There's always been some gray area around residency rules. So all the top teams, they have the ability to have one import player that doesn't live full-time in their province. On the Guju rink, both Brad and Mark Nichols live in this province, but E.J. Harden, who came in to replace Gallant, he lives in Sault Ste. Marie, and Jeff Walker has now moved off to Edmonton. So unless they win and come back again next year as Team Canada, they're going to have to find a way to rejig their lineup. So that's something that would be in the offing. So hopefully Guju can win his 
fifth title in seven years and come back again as Team Canada. And the Briar starts today. Okay. See, there's a delay in opening the new Mew Centre. Some supply chain issues regarding steel, some $33 million spent by the federal government to build that terrific facility. And it should be a great facility. It's got a lot of cool stuff inside and is much needed in that part of town. So it's about 60% complete. And the money came from the Canada Community Building Fund. So inside there's going to be a six-lane swimming pool, a steam room, indoor walking track, lots of space for community programs, an accessible playground. So not sure what they're going to do with the land where the old Mew Centre, which is still in open, still in operation, what they're going to do with that in the future. But there you go. Unfortunate delay. And for those of you who have bought a ticket to go see an event, whether it be a hockey game or a trade show or whatever, and you bought it from at the Cornerbrook Civic Center, their online service, which is handled by a company called Audience View. So apparently your personal information may indeed have been compromised. Every single day we see more stories about these cyber attacks. So the company admits there's been a security incident, and some of your information may be in the hands of the hackers. Names, addresses, email address, phone numbers, and payment card information. We're not exactly sure what other facilities use Audience View and whether or not some others, whether it be the National Culture Center or what have you, has gone through the same unfortunate set of circumstances with the breach that Audience View is now reporting. But, you know, like for the Cornerbrook Royals hockey game, because it's general admission, you can just buy, the, uh, buy a ticket in person at the box office. So it's just another example of our personal information out the door the scammers are around every single corner. Got a couple of emails this morning, and I wasn't expecting them, but I suppose it's based on a news story that's out there circulating today. And it's regarding what the federal government can or should do to celebrate the coronation of King Charles, which, King Charles, which happens on the 6th of May. So in the UK, three-day celebration, including one bank holiday. So there's lots of monarchists in the country. So remember back the debate about how the feds and the provinces would handle celebrations or holidays for the funeral for Queen Elizabeth II, and now wondering about what the country might do for this. Now, I think there's a big pocket of the country that thinks that, you know, the cost of millions and millions and tens of millions of dollars for a bank holiday for the coronation would be suspect, but many monarchists think that something should be done. We're one of the senior members of the Commonwealth, but... You know, I think a larger question would be, what's the future of the monarchy? You know, it really felt like Queen Elizabeth II was the glue that held it together through the tumultuous times that it's had over the decades that she was the monarch, some 70 years. So, you know, what the role is here in this country, what the monarchy will look like and feel like under the leadership or the guidance of King Charles. So I was a little surprised to get those emails, but of course, there's many people here in this province that are members of the Monarchist League of Canada, and they're wondering what we're going to do. What do you think we should do? Okay, this is really big news, and I think it's even bigger than this one story. So Kim and Todd Churchill have been battling for their son Carter for some six years. And now they have won a human rights case against the Newfoundland and Labrador English-speaking school board or the school district. So the commission ruled that the district failed to provide reasonable accommodation for Carter Churchill, discriminated against him during the 2016 to 2020 school years from kindergarten to grade three. Carter's 12. He has cerebral palsy, he's deaf, nonverbal, and uses American Sign Language to communicate. But he wasn't being taught American Sign Language in school. You know, so this is going to be a precedent-setting case for other families, students, and provinces right across the country. And there's also compensation that has to be paid to the Churchills to the tune of $150,000. You know, we talk a lot about, for instance, health care. 
and staffing shortages in healthcare. And these are important stories. We're happy to talk about them. But I do think we probably owe a little bit more focus and attention to education as well because the long-term health of the province and the economy and jobs and taxes do indeed come from a well-educated population. So we don't really talk about education in such forceful terms like we do healthcare, and we probably should. So congratulations to the Carter, uh, to Carter Churchill's family, Kim and Todd, who really done right by their son for so long, advocates, and it's been a long, grueling road, a roller coaster for the family. So we should probably have a little bit more on our plate regarding education. So in extension, you know, the inclusive model, it just sounds right. In concept, is absolutely what we should be doing. You know, treating all K-12 students the same, giving them the accommodations required so they have a fair shot at getting a quality education. So whether it be someone on the spectrum or with behavioral issues or mobility issues or some disability or they're deaf or whatever the case may be, if we're going to have an inclusive model, then we've got to fund and fuel and support the inclusive model as opposed to simply having all the children in the same building. That's not inclusive education. That just means they all go to the same school. So I think we can extend the conversation. And good on the Churchills. And Kim and Todd, if you're available and interested this morning, please do join us to describe what I imagine is a sense of relief, a sense of vindication. And this will indeed hopefully go a long way to more attention given to K-12 and folks who need additional layers of support. And that would include gifted children who are learning well above their current grade level, so additional supports and challenges for them as well. So let's take it on. You know, I wonder, I'm not well positioned to speak to this in any form of knowledge or authority, but, you know, do parents of hard of hearing or deaf children think that it was a mistake to close the school for the deaf? I don't know. I don't know, but I'd be curious to hear from them. Because if you had a centered uh, focus for deaf or hard of hearing children in a school for the deaf, then of course all of the learning and teaching and accreditation of the teachers to understand American Sign Language, to be able to teach it to their students, to communicate with them, because I'm not so sure. Now maybe we've turned a corner, because there was indeed a uh, hard of hearing or deaf class established at East Point Elementary, which I think was very well received. But we can't just have one school with some 8 to 10 children getting the type of learning that they need and the environment they need. It's got to be province-wide, equal, equitable, level playing field. So let's talk about education. And yes, staffing shortages and the, and the priorities inside. So whether it be Trent Langdon at the, uh, at the Teachers Association or anybody else who wants to chime in, let's do. Let's put a couple of those other issues out there. The type of curriculum and lifelong skills that should be in addition to the core curriculums, the reading, writing, and arithmetic, as people say. So, and I'll also add to it, you wonder what the status is of folding the English-speaking school district into the Department of Education, what the status of that is, and maybe have a better understanding about what that's going to mean for the quality of education in the province versus focus on redundancies or overlaps or jobs that may be lost or streamlining the, uh, the district itself, or pardon me, the department. So, and I'll throw these back out there. You know, there's always going to be concerns, because when things change, change is hard. Change is hard to wrap your mind around sometimes, and we, generally speaking, get our back up when these changes are presented to us, including in education, with how we assess the students. You know, gone are the focus on exams. Publics are gone, by the wayside, for the last couple of years. doesn't look like they're coming back. So does the new, modern way of assessing students 
is it working for the students? It might be working for the teachers. It might be working for the government. But is it working for the students? Is it working in an effort to prepare them for the next grade level, to ensure that they're prepared, to ensure that they've absorbed the curriculum and know how to approach the upcoming school year, whether it be moving from primary to elementary to junior high to high, and then, of course, preparations for post-secondary. And then I'll throw out the old you know, cell phones and uh, uniforms just to round it out. Okay. Let's take on some blacktop here. Interesting announcement yesterday coming from uh, Elvis Loveless, who's the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure, about the amount of money they're going to spend in the upcoming road work season and bridge work and culvert work. Some $225 million. That's way more than I've ever heard the province spending in one single season. Jim Morgan, who is the Executive Director at the Heavy Civil Association, says it's welcome news. It's been a couple of tough years for road builders. They have the capacity. So when we have these early tenders going out the door, the, civil, the uh, road work companies can uh, staff up and prepare for a longer season, multi-year funding, better planning, better productivity. So this is a lot of money. The focus looks like it's going to be on the Trans-Canada Highway. There's always going to be evaluations of high traffic volume areas and what it means for the roads to be properly upkept. Doesn't mean that there won't be some of the byways that also get some attention. There's a list inside the news story, whether it talks about a new interchange, Galway, uh, here on the Avalon, uh, paving a stretch of highway from Bay Vert to Springdale, replacement of the culvert on the TCH near Port of Basque, uh, upgrades for Pitts Memorial Drive, which is absolutely required, roads in Terranova, Argentia Access Road, Bonavista Peninsula Highway. So that's a lot of money going out the door. And people are wondering aloud, where do we get this money all of a sudden? There's also going to be road work done in Labrador, sections of the Northwest River Road, Route 520, and parts of Route 500 also to be paved. So the question comes in in this form. Where are we getting all this money all of a sudden? Okay, fair question. So initially, the gas tax in the province was established to fund and fuel road, bridge, and culvert work. The province has long taken in way more gas tax money than they spend in the road work season. So that's basically how the roads have been attended to and how the budget line item is arrived at. You know, there's always going to be people complaining that politics plays a bigger role than the focus of engineers and what should be prioritized versus what's good for one minister, one party, or another. And we can take that on if you're so inclined. So in the world of gas tax, a couple of things. So a number of months ago, the province decided that they were going to cut the provincial portion of the gas tax in half. That holiday goes away next month. So we haven't heard, and we're trying to find out, whether or not there's any thought to extend that holiday. Of course it does indeed jeopardize the government revenue stream, but with the way we are all forced to be very, very conscientious of every nickel going out the door, you wonder what they're going to do there. And I'll put it out there one more time because we just saw another increase in the price of furnace oil overnight by almost $0.08. Cents. That coming to a furnace near you quite quickly is a carbon tax being applied to your home heating fuel. So you wonder what the province is going to do with that about $0.07 cents of provincial gas tax portion that has been, we've been given a break on it for a while, but that's going away very quickly likely or quite possibly I'll say next month. Also when we hear stories like that poor man who got beat up on the dementia ward in the long-term care facility and the province's review of long-term care and personal care, once people start telling their stories it's not surprising but the email just gets flooded with very similar stories, very troubling stories, whether it be violence or just the way that their loved ones are not being treated in a dignified fashion, so says the family. 
whether it be the massive issue of separating couples after decades together with different medical requirements, ending up in different homes. So there's no end to that. And if you want to share yours, we can and should. And of course, the topic's entirely up to you. This one, way off the beaten uh, track. But in the world of gift cards, it's very popular to give someone a gift card so they can get exactly what they want versus what you think they want. And in Canada, gift cards are no longer allowed to expire. The companies have to recognize them. There's no, you know, at the uh, 31st of August, is no longer valid. No, that's gone by the wayside. But what happens when companies go belly up? Like we've seen, especially when it came to some restaurants right here in the city and the gift cards people had in hand. Sometimes there was an opportunity to get the cash back out of it. Sometimes, no, it's just too bad, uh, too bad about you. So the American-based company Bed Bath & Beyond, they're closing all their stores. Uh, they've got some uh, creditor protection in place at this moment in time. So if you have a gift card for Bed Bath & Beyond because you are absolutely the epitome of an unsecured creditor, you better start spending it because that expires uh, on the 9th of March. So whatever old doodad, I always thought Bed Bath & Beyond was a pretty good store. And it's not the only retailer that's having a hard time. Nordstrom uh, closing all their stores in Canada as well coming up in about a month as well. So, yeah, if you got a gift card at Bed Bath & Beyond, you better get her spent. All right, I saw a couple of Canada Games-related emails fly in my inbox as I was speaking in the preamble. Da -da -da. Oh, it's an update on the qualifying game in women's hockey. We lost last night 2-1. to one. Apparently, a real heartbreaker. And we're playing PEI today for the final placement. And let's see here. Dean's got another one. 12-year-old Bo Callahan, originally from St. George's, skating for Quebec, currently in fourth place in the girls' figure skating. Go get her, Bo. Thanks for the updates there, team. Uh, so we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address, openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. You know the deal. That only happens when you call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Todd Churchill. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. Uh, how about you? Uh, it's, I tell you, Wednesday was uh, such a rush of emotions. It was it was is quite a a I, I can't even describe the emotions of of myself and Kim on Wednesday. To be honest with you, I, I, I can't put it in words. Well, I mean, after a six year battle on behalf of Carter, I suppose it all comes in many forms: relief, vindication, and exhaustion. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I said to uh, we we were talking to another media outlet a couple of days ago, and you know, I mean, we're just we're just broken, we're just broken down people. Uh, you know, this is really taking a toll on us. And you know, after the hearing ended last year on the 9th of September, I tried to explain to my parents. You know, my parents know me really well, and I tried to verbalize to them what we'd gone through, and I and I couldn't even explain to them like you really have to have lived this. You know, what we were put through and what our son was put through by the English school district. And, and quite frankly, I'll be blunt, their only card to play was to try to financially cripple us because they knew they had no case. They had no defense. So they thought if they bankrupted us, we'd give up. And I don't think they've ever run into a pair of parents like us before. And, you know, you know, it was testimony at the hearing where a person from the uh, – a staff member at the department said, made the statement and she was challenged on a past statement she had made where she laughed and said, human rights complaints never go anywhere. Uh, you know, and that was, I think that was the attitude. I think they thought they had a sense of impunity that no one would ever go through what we went through. And, and you know, I, I think we really shocked them that we did it. I, I'm sure you did. So, you know, beyond the sense of relief or how you and Kim feel, what does this 
mean in realistic terms for the district and the focus that we can now renew in education because the inclusive model just doesn't work like it's intended to. Conceptually fantastic, in reality not necessarily working. I know lots of families that have issues with the school district and in their own schools about, you know, they go back to school the next year and the accommodation that their son or daughter needed and had in place last year isn't in place when they go back. So what do you think this means in broad terms? Not just for deaf children, but for children who just need some special supports. Well, I think the first thing is it brings accountability to the district. They were finally held to account for their failings. Um, and, and for deaf education specific, it puts on record the discrimination of my son for four years at Beachy Cove Elementary, a school where over the course of those years, we begged, we pleaded, we met with the school administration, which I, I might add is still the school, same school administration today, uh, and we were met with platitudes like, I'm just playing the cards dealt to me. I mean, that was that was the attitude of the principal at Beach Cove Elementary. And, and it is really rewarding and vindicating to find out that at his school, he is now, his school has now been, you know, found to have discriminated against our son. So to have that permanent record. And I mean, we know of other families, for example, there's a family in New Brunswick. They have a human rights complaints for the same sort of issues. And they're going to use Carter's case as a precedent for their case. So the hope is it's going to make other families fighting the same battle make their challenges so much easier because now there's a precedent. Is it working better for Carter and his fellow classmates at East Point? Um, it's the third year there. The first year was really good, but since then it's gone a little bit downhill because um, as it came out at the hearing, uh, the district does not proficiency test uh, teachers. So right now, uh, one of the two teachers in the, in the classroom with Carter uh, can't actually sign uh, very well. Um, and that, that's something that came out at the hearing. So, you know, I, again, I think there's, we can't say, well, you know, East Point is perfect and everything's fixed and everything's good. Uh, there's still a lot of challenges there. And I still think we have to keep the feet of the district to the fire. And we will do that. I mean, if they think that this is just going to go through a news cycle and they're going to weather the storm and it's, it's going to be all over, it's not. I mean, our advocacy will never stop. Is it? Is there more to it than simply the teachers being proficient in American Sign Language? It's definitely a big part of it. I mean, just imagine, I mean, I, I challenge any parent of a hearing child to think about if their child went to school this morning and had a teacher that didn't speak English. I mean, that's that's a pretty critical element to be able to communicate with the child. I mean, there's not much education or learning or development of language can happen if the teacher can't communicate with the child. So that's a major thing. Now, the, the good thing about East Point is deaf children are brought together or children that require American Sign Language are brought together into the same classroom. I mean, he has the inclusion at East Point that he never had at Beachy Cove. At Beachy Cove, he was one of 750 children. He was the only deaf child. He was totally isolated. And as came out at the hearing from his uh, deaf student assistant, I mean, Carter was just ignored. He was just there. And that's, that's what passes for inclusion in our province. It's, it's shameful. And I really hope that Andrew Fury is finally going to take responsibility and accountability. Government always says we are accountable. Well, show that accountability. Stand up and say, you know, we got this one wrong. We, we did wrong by that child, and we are going to own it. And, and if they don't, I think it speaks volumes of Andrew Fury as a premier and volumes of his government. 
And you know, it, it's one thing for Carter and fellow classmates at East Point to have this uh, this setup, even if there is a still a shortcoming with one teacher, one teacher not very proficient in American Sign Language. And I don't know how to ask this question. I'm going to try my best, and I know you will receive this as a well-intentioned question. Could this example, and of course, let me add to it, of course, East Point is only one class with eight kids. There's people around the province who need these accommodations, and they don't get them either. So it's bigger than just one classroom here. It, would yeah, these no, things... No, absolutely. No, sorry to interrupt. You're totally correct. I mean, we had parents reach out to us during the hearing. Uh, we had a, a parent in central Newfoundland who says that their, chi- their child is in a school where nobody has any ASL. The child gets supported sporadically once a week or something like that from an hour away from a school an hour away. And that's all the support the child gets. The rest of the time, there's no ASL. So this is a systemic problem. And, and the adjudicator in his ruling uh, said as much. That this is a systemic problem. So it really behooves the government to um, do something about this. You know, one of the things people don't know is that Andrew Fury, when he ran for the Liberal leadership, actually met with us. We actually requested a meeting with him and John Abbott. Um, and Andrew Fury came to my house, sat in my lawn chair on my deck, and we told him for an hour all the problems. That was three, almost three years ago. So he knows what the problem was. He made the point of explaining that he had a child just like Carter, the same age as a matter of fact, went to Beachy Cove, the same as Carter, in the same grade. And I bet Andrew Fury's experience at Beachy Cove was much different than my experience at Beachy Cove. And his son's experience was much different than my son's experience. So I challenge Andrew Fury to explain why his son deserves the experience he had, but my son does not. And I have to spend $93,000 to prove that. Todd, I'm still struggling to craft this question. I'm just going to ask it, even if it's clumsy, and I know it's not ill-intentioned. I mean, would things be better, not only for Carter, but for other children, if we stopped pretending that inclusive education worked and that, you know, the closure of the school for the deaf was a mistake and should be reopened so that we can avoid this at all costs for every other student who needs this type of American Sign Language education? Does that question make sense? Do you know where I'm trying to go? Yeah, it's it's a difficult one. Like people have asked me over the years, would, would that solve the problem if um, the the school for the deaf opened again? And and it's a difficult one because for Carter, it would probably be a good idea because we live within driving distance of the school for the deaf or where it used to be. But if you are in Wabush or you're in Corner Brook, you would have to make the hard decision: Does my child get an education, or does my child, you know, grow up with his or her family. I mean, that, that is, I, I mean, I can't imagine a parent making that decision. That is, that is to not see your children for uh, the vast majority of the year. Uh, I, that's, that's a heck of a choice to make. So, you know, I don't think that the school for the deaf model was perfect either. I think maybe a hybrid where maybe you had a centralized school and, and, and it radiated out into satellite classrooms. I mean, that's the thing that was talked about at the hearing. The teachers had made proposals about having satellite classrooms. I mean, the model of East Point could be in other places. For example, Corner Brook could have a satellite classroom to bring in children from that area that require American Sign Language, or Grand Falls, or Marystown, or or, or uh, Clarenville. You know, bigger centers that would bring in uh, children from a certain reasonable radius. Uh, I mean, the model could could ha- could work. Todd, uh, I suppose the word is congratulations, and hopefully this does bring about not only the vindication, but 
a better future, and not only for Carter, but for everybody else, whether it be in this province or across the country. We owe everybody who's in the K-12 system a fighting chance at a quality education regardless. And hopefully this goes a long way to ensuring that that happens. I really appreciate your time. Say hello to K-Man Carter for me, and thank you for this. Yeah, will do. And, and one thing I'd ask, I'd make a simple request for the people listening. I'd ask people to go to our, pay, our Facebook page called Deaf Children Matter and just follow the page. It, it doesn't cost anything. It's a simple thing. But that would be a great show of solidarity and support for Carter and other deaf children for people to go on that Facebook page and just, and just follow the page. And, and I'd, I'd really love for people to do that. Thanks for this, Todd. Stay in touch. Thank, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's uh, a pretty big deal, and of course it is absolutely centred on Carter and Kim and Todd Churchill and what they've done here and the victory they've achieved in this human rights case. But I do think the conversation gets extended, and rightfully so, throughout the entirety of K-12 and for supports that need to be in place. I mean, when you hear Todd Churchill describe Carter's experience at his first school at Beachy Cove and basically was just there in body, sitting in silence, Day in, day out. Let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, When we come back, the topic is absolutely up to you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number three. Jeff, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. I love the show. Thanks. I just wanted to chime in uh, first. I didn't realize Todd was going to be before me, but uh, I was following that story from the beginning like you. And I just wanted to tell Todd uh, that, you know, I stand with him. And and I'm, I, I guess congratulations is an odd type of word to use, but I'm, uh, I want to congratulate him on his, on his win there. Yeah, I, I hear you. And uh, I'm going to keep trying to add this point to the conversation that this, of course, is absolutely about Cardinal Churchill. But now that we've got this type of ruling and the Human Rights Commission has chimed in quite clearly on it, that I think the conversation extends beyond Carter. It's not only other deaf children, it's other children that need some uh, additional supports in school. I think this will bring a keen focus, and rightfully so. And so he fought the good fight for, or Kim and Todd, pardon me, fought the good fight for, if we're talking uh, nationwide, for thousands upon thousands of K-12 students. Okay, now just to touch on, on on the fight itself, I mean, what a gruesome fight it was. Uh, years uh, financially, wow. Uh, and, and let's get back to what he was fighting for. He all he really wanted was a qualified uh, teacher in the classroom who was qualified and proficient in American Sign Language. So what he was asking when you lay it on the table wasn't uh, a big thing. And and year after year. The system failed them. I, I can remember the story because year after year they would post for an ASL instructor uh, a couple of weeks before. So it was like it was a half-hearted attempt to find a qualified person. And uh, Todd himself, uh, articulate, smart as a tack, um, outgoing, and uh, an a-, a great advocate for his son. He brought this to the attention of the system year after year to try to make a correction. No correction was made year after year. Instead, he was given short shrift and the brush off. And in the end of the day, the system fought him tooth and nail when they knew full well they were in the wrong. It's it's such an astonishing story about a David and Goliath type of story. And I just, the one thing I will say is that now that he has one, for me now, 
you would love to see some accountability somewhere. That's what I would like to see because it was evident all along the process that uh, the Carters were on the right side of things and the system was on the wrong side. I mean, it was so glaringly obvious. But now that the, uh, now the case has been adjudicated, I wonder if there will ever be any accountability. That, that's what I would like to see, accountability. Someone somewhere should be held accountable for some of this. Uh, what, is, what does accountability look like in this case, in your opinion? Well, I think that if you look deeply into it, you can trace back some key decision-making to key personnel within the system. And for me, accountability looks like repercussions to those individuals. I honestly, for this, you're, we were talking about a simple job posting, uh, like a, 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 some effort to be put in to find ASL. I honestly think in this case, I would like to see someone lose their job over it. That's me. Yeah, and I don't even know if that accountability rests inside an individual school or at the very helm of the district because, you know, it sounds very dismissive when someone simply says, well, I'm playing the hand I've been dealt. But, of course, if you if the district hasn't hired the appropriate trained ASL teacher, then it really makes it much more complicated than, you know, the focus on Beecher Cove. And I know why that is, because that's where the child went to school. So, of course, that's going to be one of the focus areas here. But accountability is happens infrequently in this province when we see, whether it be things coming from an Auditor General's report or a human's right case, human rights case, accountability doesn't necessarily uh, coincide with findings far too often. I appreciate this this morning. Jeff, would you like to say anything else? No, I just agree with you. Uh, we don't get any accountability, and that's that's the key element that we're missing in in all the in all the injustices that go on, uh, especially in rare cases like the Churchills, where where there's vindication. Uh, it's it's so ripe for for some kind of accountability, and, and it's really it's really what needs to happen to to really bookend this and and close close the chapter. I appreciate the time, Jeff. Thank you. Have a nice day, buddy. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, you want me to go to one, Dave? Okay. I see a one being held up. Line number one, Jim, you're on the air. Good morning. How are you, Mr. Daly? Excellent. Thanks. How are you doing? Not bad. First-time caller. Welcome. Uh, the question I have, uh, Mr. Daly, is uh, my family has purchased a few golf passes for me over at Cove Valley last year and the year before. Uh-huh. And... Uh, due to some medical issues, I never got to use them, and I just more or less uh, waited until this year to use them. But where Bally Haley is taking over Coe Valley now, I've been trying to get in con- contact with Coe Valley and Bally Haley, but I can't get no answers or any any information. In the last couple of weeks, I've been trying, and I was wondering, uh, you know, I wonder if the uh, these passes are still going to be on- gift cards. I mean, still going to be honored. It's not. A, it's not a golf pass. It was a gift card, right? Right. Uh, you know what? Curiously enough, I got an email asking me the exact same question an hour ago. Uh, did you really? This, yeah, I did. Uh, from a listener named Craig. And uh, I told him that I didn't know, but I've already started to try to find out. I would imagine they're going to have to honor those gift cards, but I'll get confirmation directly from the folks at Clovelly. I do know who to ask. And so as soon as I get that information, I'll say it on air. I'll reply to Craig's email with the info I get. But I'm going to guess that they're going to be obliged to uh, honor the gift cards, but okay. confirmation will come as soon as I can get it. I appreciate that. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate yours, Jim. Good question. Okay. T- take care. Bye. All right. 
yeah, I mean, it's funny stuff, eh, when it comes in like that. Uh, let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Um, are you line number two? That's you, ma'am. Um, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I, I, I'd like to offer my congratulations to Todd as well. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it, you know, when you go through it, those kinds of, of things and you get such little response from government, uh, it, it's, it's terrible what people have to go through, which, which leads me into uh, the, the same kind of thing maybe we're going to have to do in the healthcare system to get some kind of attention to, to what's happening in the healthcare system. Uh, I, the, I'd like to comment on the, the awful experience of the Sparks family and, and what they're going through. Uh, I can, and, and, also, and also the family of, of the poor man who, who was the aggressor. Uh, I, I'm sure they must be very upset as well. But I can certainly relate to them. This kind of a thing should not be happening. Uh, my 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 own experience which is which is fairly recent uh, my aunt was a hundred years old sudden sudden onset of dementia, and she was unable to walk without without assistance. She was placed on on the dementia ward um, and it, it, she kept she kept uh, falling uh, she multiple bruises uh, cuts all the time. It was just after COVID. It was uh, very hard to get any answers from anyone. And it, 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 was just, it was just heartbreaking going in every day and seeing the multiple bruises and cuts on her. And when I complained, <clears throat> that was bad enough, but when I complained uh, to all the various people that I was that you're that's supposed to be there in various responsible positions the social worker nursing administration director of long term care the answers i got was the same as the spark family there's nothing we can do we have a no restraint policy and and then what really uh, it was so upsetting was to tell me that she had the right to fall. So there was no protection for her. It, it was not a safe place. What does the right to fall even mean? I have no idea. Like, I mean, you get to the point where you almost feel like you're in a twilight zone. You're talking to people who, who got no concept of what you're feeling, let alone uh, the poor, your, your poor relative. And then when I tried to explain that, like, I mean, she's 100 years old. Y you know, she's going to break bones. And, but the answer, just as appalling to me, well, that was okay. Because she would then, if she broke bones, she'd have to be in the bed and she'd be moved to another ward. Like I mean, that's that's an that's unthinkable. I mean, what kind of thinking process goes into all of that? 
I think I, it's, it's the absence of thought. It's the absence of critical thinking. You know, when can it ever be acceptable in these types of, if, if we're talking about the health, the safety, and the dignity of care for seniors in a provincially run facility, how can an answer ever be, there's nothing we can do? I mean, how can that be the case? And, you know, add into it the, the babble of the right to fall. I can't believe anyone even had the audacity to say that to you. But, you know, the answers cannot be, well, there's nothing we can do. We're talking about the safety of the seniors, the residents, in the care of the province. There's no way that there's nothing we can do. Just throw our hands in the air, shrug our shoulders, and hope it goes away, and hope you go away. I want to pick up on a point you made right off the bat here. You know, for the Churchills to take this on, and the six long years, and you to be the advocate for your loved one, how many people out there don't have that champion, don't have that person with the fire in their belly that's willing to take on the big boy, to take on the institutions, to take on the government, and repeatedly and doggedly and stick with it over the course of years, people get worn out. So how many people just don't have that advocate in their corner? And consequently, we don't hear enough stories like the Churchills, like the one you're telling this morning, and like the Sparks, who are doing what they have to do. Because some people are just either worn out or don't know where to turn and think, well, I'm just going to be, you know, the, the time and the money that it's going to cost and the, big the amount of time and money that government has to push back just means that it's a losing battle, so I'm not going to fight it. That happens way too much. Well, I, I, well, well, well this is what I'm saying. Maybe, maybe we have to somehow, uh, and I don't know the, the the right steps. Maybe there should be a class action suit. Like I continued to request, like with my with my aunt, I continued to request her transfer to St. Patrick's Mercy Home. Now. Uh, uh, you know, well, it was COVID, everything was shut down, all those kinds of things was all in the mix. And then one day I called St. Patrick's Mercy Home. They had never heard of her. I was being told, so you're not being told the truth. You're not being leveled with, and, and I mean, this is, this is all the people who are paid to make those decisions as appropriate to to uh, to the residents. So I continued to request transfer, and finally I said, "If you can't transfer her," and I said, "I will be calling St. Patrick's Mercy Home to 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 find out for sure if they won't take her." And I said, "I want to, to I want to see her medical chart because I mean she was bruises and cuts." And and I I said if if we if I can't get her transferred to St. Patrick's Mercy Home, then I want her assessed to find out what I need to take her home. I said I cannot come here anymore, and and see this. This is a hundred year old frail person that I that I that I have to. I dread it going in. It, it it was like it's going into some kind of a a twilight zone. It like it it's really it's really odd. Anyway, within a week of me requesting that an assessment, then within a week she was transferred to St. Patrick's Mercy Home, and 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 I don't know if I was if it made me more angry or if it made well on one hand it made me happy because. She, it, it, she was, she was a different person. It was like night and day. She was comfortable. She was happy. They had a low uh, chair with wheels on that she sat in, and 
like it, it, it was, it was so, it, it was so distressing to know that I mean that it was inappropriate placement, and and I mean this is this is what is happening now. As it is out there now, and and and, and I mean, uh, uh, this is not my first um, <laughs> um, complaint issue with with the healthcare system, and I'm also involved in another one, which I'm going to take further. And, but as it is out there now, there's no one place or person that you can appeal to when you when you have a complaint, and and it is not being addressed. And and what is needed out there to me is an independent oversight committee, and and that and that committee would be able to address the issues on a timely basis, acknowledge the problem, and hold either the system or the staff responsible accountable. Yeah, you wonder if that might be one of the outcomes from this review of long-term and personal care homes in the province. There's a lot to it. Some people might think it's very complicated, and it is. But an independent review body makes a lot of sense to me. And maybe, just maybe, like I know the seniors advocate deals with public policy in broad strokes. Maybe we add horsepower to the seniors advocate's office that they can take on case-by-case basis as well, like we do with, say, for instance, the the advocate for the children and youth in the province. Well, right now, the seniors advocate is useless for a person with an individual problem. I mean, that's not their mandate. No, that's right. But but if an oversight committee, an independent oversight committee, would deal with the – because, you see – when you when you go and make those complaints, I mean, okay, government has a role, so there's the policy. And now, especially in the long-term care sector, there's two departments. There's the Department of Health and the Department of Children, Seniors, and Social Development. Mm-hmm. So you so so that's one so that's one aspect of it, and then but then they won't interfere into into any of the operational or implementation issues that belong to the 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 health agency Eastern Health for example, I mean that's another issue, and then if it's and then if it's the 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 unprofessional behavior and the conduct. I mean, well, then the individual has to deal with the professional associations. It, it's complex, but it's not complicated if you know the system. Now, if there was an oversight committee that could deal with those issues because they all interact with each other, but you're just, you're just kept referred from one to the other, and it goes around and around. And I have even been referred back to the same people. Oh, yes. Like <laughs> that happens it, all, it too, is, all too common. It is, it, it is horrendous. Maybe a, maybe a class action suit will, will – maybe, maybe that's what has to happen. Uh, I, uh, I don't know, but to have our seniors, uh, I mean, put in, put in positions like this is, is heartbreaking. It, it's heart-wrenching. It is. I mean, it, it's the same as, like, I mean, would, you, would, would the public not complain if their preschool children in the daycare came home beaten up and, 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 and things like that? Well, of course. And a measure of society is how we treat our most vulnerable, and that goes from children all the way to our seniors. Uh, because of the time on the clock, I do have to get to the break, but I really appreciate your contribution this morning. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.
Right. All right, let's take that break. When we come back, we're talking human rights, and then we're going to talk about the $225 million worth of road work the province announced yesterday. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the program. We're, we've asked the callers that are in the queue to hold on for after the news, so don't no, no shortchange them because we just have a couple of minutes before the 10 a.m. newscast here. But a couple of quick notes. So a gentleman just called and spoke with Dave, and we don't always do this, but uh, a fellow in the parking lot at the Health Sciences Center found, picked up a couple of credit cards, and the name on them, I guess I should say, is Roxanne Stacy. So if you lost your credit cards, the gentleman brought them back into the health sciences, gave them to the, uh, the security staff, so your cards are safe and you can retrieve them from the health sciences center. There's also conversations out there about, of course, inside the world of ambulatory services, air and ground, and whether you look, we spoke with Hubert Dahl yesterday from the Teamsters Local 855 about the ongoing work they're doing with Fewer's Ambulance Service, but it looks like Smith's Ambulance Service in Whitburn is going to be no longer the provider of ambulatory care out there uh, either in the very near future. We don't know exactly why that came to an end or what's going to become of the paramedics working that particular ambulance route. So they say there's not going to be any change. If you call 911, the same outcome will be that you'll get an ambulance arrived to where you are, but that is coming. Also, just saw this late last night and uh, forgot to add it into this morning. You know, there's still lots of conversations going around and committee hearings going around regarding foreign bad actors and their meddling or interference in Canadian elections and the, you know of course the, the notorious 11 candidates that may have been getting some financial support from Beijing through their Toronto consulate. The Commissioner of Canada elections, her name is Caroline Simard, she appeared before the standing committee yesterday and they are going to launch a review into the foreign interference complaints. Whether or not that goes too far and whether or not we're even doing a very good job covering this issue. Because if the end result is, is that more and more Canadians have no faith in the integrity of the free and fair elections that we do indeed enjoy in this country, that's the worst possible outcome. So, you know, I don't know what the right answer is here, but some fresh eyes, independent from partisan ranks, would be very, very helpful on this front. But that story is gaining traction day over day. And... I would imagine it's being mishandled more often than not. Uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John's Centre, and he's the aspiring leader of the NDP. That's Jim Din. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Thank you for that introduction. Happy to do it. <laughs> I'm up here. I'm calling from Labrador West today. I'm up here with my colleagues, uh, Leela uh, Evans and Jordan Brown, uh, for a few meetings and uh, um, uh, in the area. And uh, I was just listening to the temperature, minus 5 in St. John's, minus 17 right now, according to the, uh, <laughs> to the thermometer. <laughs> when I hear but some I of the temperatures coming out of Labrador, I mean, it chills my bones all the way here in the studio. Minus 56 wind chill one day last week? Oh, my yeah. goodness. <laughs> I'm glad. I, I'll take minus five. Absolutely. <laughs> but listen, I'm calling in. I, I uh, <clears throat> when I heard that uh, you introduced the topics, and I listened to uh, Todd, and I want to talk about the uh, briefly about the Carter Churchill case. Um, first of all, congratulations to Todd and Kim and uh, Carter on a uh, on a hard won victory. Uh, and it, it is odd to be saying that, but I, I do find it very sad and disturbing, of course, that they. Uh, that they had to go through such a process just to get the basic uh, the, the rights that they uh, that 
were so important for their son's education. Uh, I'll say that uh, off the bat. So um, I know I, I sat in on the hearings. I've spoken to the uh, uh, Todd and Kim several times. We've presented questions in the House of Assembly and petitions on their behalf as well. But I want to go to one, uh, I guess, look at one aspect of this. And looking at the report, originally the Department of Education was uh, uh, originally included in the uh, in the case, uh, and that was dropped. But I, I want to go to one thing that I've heard. I, I've experienced myself as a teacher, an LTA president, and I heard at the uh, at the hearing, which is basically, don't ask for the extra resources. You're not getting it. That uh, you had to find the uh, you had to find the uh, the resources or the funding within the existing fiscal envelope. And I heard that in the testimony of uh, uh, Tony Stack, um, and uh, I heard as much from the uh, uh, with regards to uh, the, the testimony of the uh, deputy minister at the time. And I, I, I and this I think is uh, is a large part of the problem, and um, that. I heard. Uh, I've heard it like uh, when I was at, when I was at the NLTA. Uh, NLTA itself, I would hear from um, I would hear from uh, principals who would be advocating for the extra resources for children in their school. Eventually, to the point where they they just had to give up because they weren't getting it. Uh, they knew that uh, that the, the fiscal envelope wasn't there. That they they had to find the resources within the current resources in the school, which means robbing Peter to pay Paul, essentially. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was heartbreaking. I know that I, I will say this in relation to this. I attended one school, uh, visited one school that had won an inclusive, uh, won an award for its inclusive education practices. The following the year before, th- when I visited them, they were heartbroken because they had had an influx of um, other s- s- students with diagnosed exceptionalities. They didn't get the resources they needed to deal with them. They had to find the resources within the school, and it meant that the services that they were offering were downgraded. And I certainly have witnessed this as a teacher. So I will say this. You know, you had you made the comment, uh, the comment earlier, and it's a valid point about like you know uh, how do we pay for this? And uh, uh, you know, because there there are many carters out there, and there uh, you know not everyone has got the tenacity, I guess, uh, or the or the financial means that uh, that the Churchills uh, took on, uh, and and that was it. It, it played havoc with the, the, themselves, with the personal lives, and everything else, you know, in their family life. It, it's a significant commitment, but. I look at, at one time, we would have institutionalized, uh, I guess, the children with uh, various needs. But once the decision is made to put uh, to, uh, towards inclusion, and I will say this, I, I resist the term inclusion as much as inclusive education. Once we make that decision, then it comes down to in that school, what are the resources that are needed in that school, in that system, uh, to make it work, to make sure that the child has, uh, the the children have the resources they need and that the teachers have the resources uh, they need to help that child. I think here is a prime example there where this, this, this is a failure straight at the top in terms of uh, the, the, there's an existing budget budget envelope. There's uh, you know, whether you call it budget based decision-making, I don't care what, but once it comes down to the budget is the bottom line, then, you're going to see the effects on students, on vulnerable individuals such as Carter. And I think it, it's, I, I, I listened to Todd, he had spoken to Andrew Fury, 
Well, I'm assuming that from here on in uh, that the, that the current government will probably uh, will hopefully change the practices of so many years of this uh, and start looking at okay, we've got children with uh, with exceptionalities. What are the needs? What are the sports they need to make sure that they have the same education uh, as children who may not have the exceptionalities? And that's where we've got to go with that, Patty. Uh, uh, yeah, you know. I don't dispute that. You know, we find ways to pay for all sorts of stuff that we deem to be important. And if we don't have a priority list that includes very near the top education, then we're kidding ourselves. Because, and I say this all the time, and here it comes again, when people are polled near election time and, you know, what, ask what's most important to you, and it goes something like this all the time, the economy, taxes, health care, the roads, uh, criminal justice, uh, all the way down the line, and then we find education somewhere around 9 and 10. If we kind of rejigged our thought process on that front and had education at the very, very top, things like the economy and taxes and healthcare and roads would take care of themselves very, very, very much more quickly than they do today when we don't have enough focus on education. So we structure an approach. We revamp our approach to delivering education, whether that be for the most gifted students or for Carter Churchill and, and other deaf children or anyone on the spectrum or anyone with a, a, an additional support required in the classroom. If we have to boil it down to how much it costs, okay, but let's figure out a structure. Then we can talk about costs and how we cover it because we, if we fail anybody in the K-12 system, we generally fail society in full because our hopes, long-term, viability, prosperous, uh, healthy, uh, economically robust province does require on the K-12 system as much as any other industry or facet of life. Guaranteed. And I can tell you that once now that the uh, the school district is being subsumed into the department, I think now it, it's, it's it no longer is the uh, government or the department going to be able to well blame the uh, the district for failing in in, um, in in providing the services. I think it's now incumbent upon them to make sure that the uh, here's here's what we need so that we avoid these these needless and unnecessary. Uh, and, and painful and costly uh, human rights cases. No other parent uh, should be going through this. And by the way, I'll extend this a little bit further, Betty. If we're talking about an inclusive society, and I'm talking looking at vulnerable seniors, vulnerable adults, uh, it comes down to what is it we need to make sure that they can uh, 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 operate and have the sports they need. Otherwise, we're looking at institutionalization. That's not the answer. But if we're committed to an inclusive society as well, it's going to come down uh, to putting the resources in place. And I, and I, you, you hit the nail on the head I, when you look at what people are asked for, what people are asked as priority. It comes down to what are the priorities. And I think our priorities is you look after you look after the the, uh, the education system. You look after those uh, so that they don't have to become institutionalized, uh, and they don't have to depend on the uh, the acute care, medical care system. And you know what? I think we uh, we look after those things, and we save in the long run, and we make for a healthier society. That's just my thought on it. Well, you know, I think education is a big part of what we're referring yeah. to as the social determinants of health. It plays a, a quite yeah. an active role. And if you know, if the most expensive things in this province and in this country are a night in a hospital bed or a night in a prison cell, then education has an absolutely positive impact on both. It does. It's undisputable or indisputable. It's been researched up and down the line, and we know it to be true. Uh, appreciate the time, Jim. Safe travels.
Take care, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jim Din, NDP member for, for St. John's Center. Okay, Jim Morgan, appreciate your patience. He's the executive director of the Heavy Civil Association of Newfoundland and Labrador, basically the road builders. We'll get his reaction to the $225 million the province spends or is planning to spend this road work season. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number six, say good morning to the executive director of the Heavy Civil Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Jim Morgan. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Petty. How are you today, sir? Excellent, sir. Appreciate the patience. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Uh, just for context, uh, over the past number of road work seasons, so yesterday with the announcement of what they're calling unprecedented, $225 million for highway construction, how does that uh, stack up to years past? Uh, Patty, you know, it is a big number, uh, absolutely, and it, no question it's a big number, but it's a number that the province needs. We all know uh, the condition of some of our bridges and roads and uh, culverts, uh, you know, and even the water and sewer requirements throughout the province. So uh, it is a number that is needed. Uh, specifically to your question, Patty, last year the number was in the $170 million range, and the year before that, 165, 160, 165. So it is, you know, it is a jump of 25% uh, thereabouts, but uh, certainly, you know, from an industry perspective and from a citizen's perspective, uh, it's work that needs to be done. And uh, also, Patty, it's it's a big number, but it's going to put a lot of people to work as well. So there's a, a lot of benefit. Uh, associated with infrastructure spending uh, throughout our province. Speaking of putting people to work, do the road building companies have the capacity to satisfy all of these pending contracts? Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely, Patty. Over the past couple of years, uh, at the 160, 170, 180 range, uh, we had contractors that basically, you know, were down, had one or two crews uh, working, and, pre, you know, other years would have had three or four crews working. So there's lots of capacity uh, within the contractor base here in the province to get this work done. That that won't be a problem. What impact have the early tenders had, realistically? Oh, listen, the early tenders are huge, Patty. Um, you know, you, you can put out whatever number you want on the budget, but if you're not getting your tenders out till June, July, or well into when the season has started, uh, the number can be whatever it is, but if the tenders are not out on the road, uh, you're not going to get the work done. So the budget might be 225, but if you don't put your tenders out till June or July, uh, you know, you might only get 170, 180 of that work done. So the, the early tenders, and uh, myself and you have had this discussion in the past, uh, you know how important it is to the industry. Uh, early tenders, uh, year over year, extremely important so that people are going to work uh, as soon as the season, short season here in Newfoundland Labrador opens. So that uh, early tender package that we have with the, uh, with the bigger number and with the multi-year plan so people can look at what's coming and can make business plans and can make decisions on where they're going to set up and where they're going to do the crushing and what they're going to bid on. Uh, it's a really, really good package uh, for everybody here in the province as far as we're concerned. Tell us how the tender package works a little bit in more detail. So does the province come out and say we need this type of bed prep work done and this thickness of asphalt, this chemical uh, compound of asphalt, all of those types of things, or is that a to and fro? Uh, there's a little bit of both. I mean, certainly there are tenders where the province will come out and they will determine the asphalt mix. Uh, they will determine exactly what the compaction needs to be, exactly how much liquid asphalt uh, is used and what type of liquid asphalt does get used. So they do have, you know, at times they have very strict parameters, you know, exactly what they're looking for. And there's multiple testing done as the work rolls out to ensure that the, uh, that the owner of the province, the people of the province, are getting what they're paying for. And then there's also what's called an NSPEC, an NSPEC job that, that may come out. And that's where the, uh, the tender would say, 
to the contractor for the contractor to come up with the mixed design. Then that mixed design is submitted, it's reviewed, and uh, it, it may, may be changed or may be accepted as it is. But then that is the that that sets the parameters for what the uh, what the province is looking for for that particular job. In this province, uh, usually when we talk about how long the roads last before there's ruts and potholes and the like, and we always say, well, it's the freeze thaw cycle. But of course, freeze thaw is a feature of most of Canada. But the roads are not driven right across the country. Why do you think that we don't quite get the long-lasting nature of new asphalt that we see in other places? And one spot jumps out to me is the work that would be done on the roads through Terranova National Park and the quality of it and the amount of time it lasts versus on either side of the park. Can you help us understand why the roads don't seem to last very long around here before there's damage? Um, sure. But but before I go down, you know, I, I, I don't want anybody to think that it's only here in Newfoundland and Labrador that, uh, that we have trouble with roads uh, and road longevity. Uh, I, I, I'm in constant contact with my counterparts throughout Atlantic Canada, and in every one of the Atlantic provinces, uh, you know, I, I hear instances of the same thing. So it's not just here in Newfoundland, Labrador. Well, I, I wouldn't do. think so, no. No, and it, it does have a lot to do with, with our weather patterns, uh, freeze-thaw. There's no question about that whatsoever. Uh, you specifically mentioned uh, Terranova National Park, and I think the uh, the federal spec, uh, if you look at the Terranova National Park uh, spec and you look at the pavement, I don't know if you, if you went by when they were tearing up the old pavement, but there is there is a, a thicker layer of, of asphalt uh, that goes down there. So, uh, but then Patty, it comes down to a put and take. So, if uh, and let me let me just back up a little bit. Uh, the uh, 601 up in Toronto, or 401, sorry, in Toronto. I think there's something in the order of 16 inches of pavement, uh, five or six different layers, on that road. But that's a road that probably cost, you know, I don't know. I'm going to say six or eight million dollars uh, per four-lane highway per mile uh, to construct. So there, there's that balancing act of, you know, ensuring that we have a road that will last. Uh, a considerable length of time, but at the same time, if we build it to last for 50 years or 100 years, uh, you, we're not going to get very much pavement uh, laid here in Newfoundland Labrador. Have you seen the government or any one of your members do a cost-benefit analysis to mimic what might be the federal specs versus provincial specs, you know, for value for money spent? Because I remember one time I was sitting in a budget lock, uh, lockdown one day, and the minister at that point of finance was Kathy Bennett, and she said, we're getting more kilometers paved for less money than in years past. But of course, you know, you kind of, sometimes you get what you pay for. So have you ever seen a cost-benefit analysis of doing fewer kilometers, but they, it lasts longer, and what that might mean, especially in the high uh, traffic volume areas? Well, what I have seen, Patty, uh, and what, what the industry has had discussions with government on over the past number of years has to do with testing uh, certain pavement uh, sections along the highway. So uh, we, in conjunction with government, uh, the industry proposed different mixed designs for pavement. The government had their own mixed designs. And there are five or six stretches of, of, uh, of, of highway which uh, we use different mixed designs on. And testing has been done over you know the past three, four, five years. And uh, certainly uh, the government is seeing uh, better longevity, better wear uh, with certain mixed designs compared to others. So uh, they are moving in the direction of the mixed designs and the type of pavement that gives them the, the best longevity and the uh, best bang for the buck. Can you help us understand what happened with the nighttime pilot project? Was did it was the end result that it was not achievable because of cost or safety? What happened there? 
Um, I, you know, I, I don't want to speak uh, on behalf of the owner of the province or the Department of Transportation on that, but I, I do know that uh, the, the cost for nighttime paving, and uh, and this was something we knew going into it, but the, I, bl- I believe the cost came out in the order of 25 to 30% more mm-hmm. uh, to do it at night versus to do it during the day. Uh, no, no question. I mean, listen, I, I, we all get frustrated uh, coming up on construction out on the highway or secondary roads, and uh, uh, but sometimes there's just no way around it to, to get that improved product, to get that new pavement down, to get that road repaired or new culverts put in. Uh, there's no way around those delays or, or or detours. Yeah, well, of course, I mean, people demand the roads get done and then they're mad when they get slowed down because the road work is ongoing. And I know the answer to this one, but just for the benefit of the listeners, you know, you'll have this frustration too where there's signs that say you're coming upon a construction zone. And then, lo and behold, there is no work being done, there's no crews on site, but the slowdowns continue. And, you know, whether it be for the uh, kilometers you're allowed to travel per hour. So... Why do why do we still have the slowdowns, reduction of speed when there's no work being done? Um, Patty, I, I guess right across the country, from a safety perspective, uh, you know, there, there, there's no ability for the if it is a construction site, then the contractor has to put up those signs. So the fact that there's equipment on the side of the road, that there, there may be uh, some bumps where we're paving may have been gouged out a little bit, or mill and fill operations may be taking place. Uh, or maybe the uh, the side of the road where the, where there's gravel uh, may be disturbed, so that it's it's a larger drop off. But uh, it, it, if it is a construction site, then from a safety perspective, the contractor has no choice but to abide by the uh, traffic control manual rules and regulations, which are there to protect everybody and to have those signs put in place. Yeah, it may look like the work is complete, but some of the things that you can't see with the naked uh, layman's eye, like the, the shoulders being uh, totally prepared for the, prop- the normal rate of speed on one stretch of the highway or another. Uh, Jim, really appreciate the time this morning. Listen, Patty, any time you want to reach out and maybe we should touch base in mid-July and uh, have an update on how things are going for this season. I look forward to it. Thanks again. Take care, Patty. Have a great day. You too, Jim. Bye-bye. That's Jim Morgan. He's the executive director of the Heavy Civil Association. Uh, you don't want me to take this one here, Dave? Uh, before so you know i gave a shout off uh, off the top of the program justifiably so and hopefully people are willing to share more and more stories of their son or daughter or whatever who whoever pardon me is participating in the canada winter games uh, ongoing on prince edward island at this moment wraps up this weekend you know it's unfortunate that the women lost to one to new brunswick yesterday they play the host team today for the final placements and yes Gold medal. Maddox Glover from CBS won a gold medal in the Special Olympics Level 2 figure skating. We'll get reaction from the mayor of the community right after this. That's Darren Bend. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the mayor of CBS. That's Darren Bent. Mayor Bent, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you today? Couldn't be better. How about you? Well, it's a great day, I'll tell you that. Uh, we couldn't be prouder in the town of Conception Bay South uh, to know that we're going to be welcoming home the newest national champion, Canadian champion, figure skater in Maddox Glover, who uh, had an amazing performance last evening and captured the gold medal at the Canada Games. And uh, just fantastic. I reached out to uh, family this morning. Uh, he's, uh, he's overwhelmed with the responses he's getting. The town's a buzz. Uh, it's just a fantastic accomplishment for this young athlete. 
13-year-old uh, student, grade 8 student at Villanova Junior High. And uh, I just had to call him Patty because uh, it's just a fantastic uh, accomplishment for him. And, uh, of course, for Newfoundland and Labrador, Team Newfoundland and Labrador, at these Canada Winter Games in PEI. Great result, obviously. Top step by the podium and a gold medal around his neck. So bravo to uh, Maddox Glover. 13 is a very tender young age to be at a National Games too. And I, what I think is most incredible is when you see the personal best that get delivered or what have you, but for virtually every single athlete are participating on either the Paris side, Special Olympic side, and or the Games, they've never been at an event like this before. They may have been to some big Atlantic tournaments, maybe competed in a national event in their own discipline, but never with all the variety of sports that are competed in in the Games. So it's a bit overwhelming, I would think, for a lot of the athletes. It takes them a while to get their stride when they get to the Games. So when you're 13 and you can take all of that into account... And being competing on that stage to be able to summon up that performance at the right time is magnificent. Yeah, and you know, Patty, and you know, and and uh, we know from from our own experiences that when you go to games like these, you know, at this level, uh, and, and even at Atlantics and and uh, and even National Club and all these different types of tournaments that they have, that at the end of the day, when you get back, your best memories are about the the new friends you've made the. Uh, the friendships you enhance, the experiences you had with your team, it, you, you know, that what happens on the field or on the ice or, you know, on the court or what have you, uh, usually pales in comparison uh, to that experience, that, that that camaraderie and being part of the bigger team and representing either your club or your province. And, of course, all of the athletes from Newfoundland and Labrador bring that home with them. They bring it back to their own clubs and organizations and sports, and it enhances our sports here and so forth, you know. Uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a great accomplishment for this athlete. Conception Bay South was proud to send 16 athletes in multiple sports uh, to these games, and it's an incredible experience for all of them, and I congratulate all of them on the accomplishment of going and being able to represent your province because that is a fantastic thing. And I, I read this morning on one of the uh, notes that uh, uh, Maddox went there to uh, do his personal best. Well, he did his personal best. He did the best in the country, and we couldn't be prouder. Yeah, you add in the trading of the pins and the swapping of gear, and it is a, a it's a great experience, and not not only for the athletes, but their coaches, trainers, and their families. I uh, we enjoyed our time in Winnipeg at the games back in uh, 2017, and never forget it. Uh, anything planned for Maddox and the returning 16 athletes when they get back from PEI? Well, we've reached out to Maddox's family already, and we're going to have him down to town council uh, for uh, for a special. Uh, uh, congratulations for sure. And uh, we're going to be reaching out to the athletes and uh, when they come home, because that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's about community. It's about uh, uh, supporting one another. And it's about supporting our athletes and, and their parents and their coaches and all the people that go into making this a fantastic experience for all the athletes. And I know that across our province, there's going to be a lot of that going on over the next couple of weeks. And make sure you put uh, Maddox and his family in touch with me. I'd love to have him on the show. Absolutely. I'll send your uh, number along and let them know. And thank you, Patty, for allowing me to come on and do this this morning. Uh, we're, we're just uh, so proud of Maddox and all the team and uh, these athletes uh, today. But it's uh, great when you, you do have a gold medal coming home. It's a little extra special. Absolutely. Good to have you on. Thanks for this, Mayor Bent. Thanks, Patty. Bye-bye. CBS Mayor Darren Bent, of course, Special Olympics, greatest motto in sports. Let me win, but if I cannot win, let me be brave in the attempt. Pfft, love that. Uh, let's go line number three. Robert, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you? Top shelf. You? Excellent, my sir. Thank you very much. Good. Uh, I just wanted to make a comment <clears throat> Excuse me. 
a comment on the gentleman who called about construction, the one before the mayor of CBS. Yeah, that was Jim Morgan. A few years ago when I was driving across the country and, of course, going through construction zones, I noticed that there were construction signs there in the evening that said construction zones in effect when workers present. So in my assumption, that would mean that you didn't have to go by the construction limit. But until we got to Atlantic Canada... We didn't see any of those signs. Yeah, I've driven across the country uh, once in one fell swoop, but I don't. I do know, and I got some buddies in that industry, and they told me a couple of things that I thought made a bit of sense. For instance, some of the final uh, shoulder work, for instance, is some of the last work to be done, and until that's done, it's not safe for the uh, hundred kilometer an hour pace of play on the highway. So I kind of get that, but I've encountered the exact same frustration as everybody else. You slow down oh, yeah. for an extended amount of construc- construction zone and not a piece of equipment or a person in sight. Yeah, and it's like with paving, too. You know, you don't want to go across gravel if it you know, bumps all over the road. But I've just taken it at my own discretion. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's what most people do. But, uh, you know, even if you don't see the full-scale operations ongoing, there might be a couple of people a little further down the zone. So when you get there, you say, well, there's nothing going on here. I'm going to press that, the loud pedal a little bit harder. Next thing you know, you come upon, come upon maybe even just a couple of fellas in a pickup truck that are still there doing whatever they're doing. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I, I couldn't recall what I saw for construction signs in other parts of the country for road work being done. But we tried to cover as much ground as we could with uh, that caller, and his name is Jim Workin. He's the executive director at the Heavy Civil Association. Oh, nice. Yeah. I, I tuned in just uh, the last few minutes. Yeah, so we go to the source on that one. Of course, the, the conversation started with the amount of money the province announced yesterday that they'd be spending for this road work season. And for comparisons purposes, uh, it's $225 million they're going to spend this year. Last year, Mr. Oregon says it was about 160 or $170 million, so that's a big 25% increase. So a lot a lot of road work going to get done this year. Yeah, right on. All right, that's all I wanted to mention. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Great, Patty. Have a good day. You too, Robert. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, okay, let's go to line number four. Scott, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Couldn't be better. How are you doing? Wonderful grand. Good. On your uh, your program, uh informative and sometimes uh, entertaining as usual. <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, just calling out to throw out a bouquet to Eastern Health. Um, I had an appointment this morning actually at uh, Health Science and of course I expected to you know, to go in and have to wait tremendous amounts of time uh, and that didn't happen. I walked in just bang and a bang and a boom. Uh, they were quick, polite, uh, extremely friendly and I'm out the door and back to work. So uh, I just thought on that note, I would uh, I would share that. Well, you know, like most things in this world, it's the headlines that scream bloody murder that get all the attention, isn't it? Is this problem or that problem, this negative experience or the other? But in fact, as most people, when they get in the system, generally speaking, we can be pretty efficient. And certainly the type of professionalism people encounter is top quality so i know why we talk about the problems and we do need to talk about the problems we shouldn't have to applaud the appropriate uh, delivery of one system or another so yes when we talk about problems we hopefully will see some efforts uh, efforts to close those gaps or to uh, address those shortcomings but there's lots of good experiences to be had inside of the healthcare system as well yeah absolutely i i was uh, extremely pleased 
and I thought I'd, I'd call in. And as a wise man once said, I found service to be top shelf. <laughs> you enjoy your day, Patty. You too, Scott. Entertaining Thanks. as always. Thanks for this, buddy. All the yeah. best. Bye-bye. Yeah. yeah, you know, we get the stray bouquet associated with uh, the healthcare delivery system. Dave, you want me to take three here or what's the play? Yeah, okay, let's go. We pumped the tires for the Avalon East playoffs uh, yesterday with uh, Seamus O'Keefe. Let's do the exact same for the St. John's Junior Hockey League playoffs with their president, Jim Hare. Jim, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you this morning? Great, sir. How are you doing? I uh, can't beat it. Just uh, want to let your listeners know, and especially those hockey fans, and even the ones that aren't hockey fans, that our uh, Junior Hockey League uh, playoffs began last night with a real barn burner. Uh, 20 seconds left in the third period when Mount Burrow scored the third goal and and walked away with a 3-2 victory. So it was a great start to our playoffs. Uh, tonight uh, we have game one between the Southern Shore Breakers and the CBN Stars at 7.30 in, uh, in Bay Roberts. And again, all the series are going to be great. And then tomorrow night, we got a full uh, full slate of four playoff games on the go. We've got uh, games in CBS, Southern Shore, Paradise, and St. John's at the uh, at Twin Rinks. And then on Sunday afternoon, Avalon are home at the DF Barnes. And that game is at 3 o'clock for anybody listening. It's, uh, it's a different uh, start time for them, but it's 3 o'clock Sunday afternoon. And then Mount Pearl are back home again on Sunday night, and Northeast are home down to Jack Byrne on Sunday night. So, and tell you, Patty, as you know, I've been around this here a long, long time. And uh, this year was probably one of the most competitive years that I can remember in junior hockey, either going back as an official, as a coach in the league, and now as an executive member of the junior league. And uh, we've had, uh, yeah, some of these 15, 17, 18 games that ended either in a shootout or ended in overtime. And there might have been a points uh, spread in the standings when you look at it, but I tell you, a lot of those games were won by one or two goals. So it's a great brand of hockey for $10. I mean, come on out and support these kids, because they're or kids or young men. Support them because they, uh, they like anybody, when there's a crowd in there, they'll perform better too. And, and the teams need the, uh, need the attendance, you know, because it's a, a costly operation, believe it or not, to operate a local junior team. So uh, let's get out there, boys and girls, men and women, and, uh, and see some great junior hockey. Yeah, it was pretty tight between second all the way to fourth. Maybe a little drop off uh, for CBR there in fifth. Uh, CBN looked like they were pretty strong. They had 20 wins out of the 24 games. But if you look down the goals for and against, it's a really competitive league. Of course, with 147 goals, CBN, their junior stars, they look pretty stout. But anyone can win in the playoffs. That's why you play the games. It's not decided on paper. Well, like last night, I mean, uh, Paradise, the difference in points between them and uh, Mount Pearl and uh, and actually, Paradise with about two minutes left had a glorious opportunity to go up 3-2. And uh, Young Loveless made a great save. And then uh, scrambled down in front of the uh, Paradise net and a bouncer too. And then the puck went, eh? So, again, it's <laughs> I really don't understand. We've got to get people out there because this is a great brand of hockey. And for $10, you're not going to get much better entertainment. Absolutely right. As fond memories of Junior in my poor old ragged head. I uh, appreciate this, Jim. So the website, if people want to find the playoff schedule, was a really easy one. It's stjohnsjuniorhockeyleague.ca. You get all the information about the upcoming games. Good luck to all hands, and hopefully they have a, a healthy, competitive playoff season. Oh, great, Patty, and I really appreciate your time. And probably get back to you when we get into maybe the finals. Sure, let's get do it. the two teams. And, and, uh, and uh, that, that's, when that gets to that point, it's going to be great. No question. You're always welcome, Jim. Okay, thanks, Pat. You take care, bud. You too. Bye-bye. That's Jim Harris, the president of the St. John's Junior Hockey League.
So, yeah, the schedule is right there on their website, uh, easy to follow. Let's take a break. We're coming back to talk education with the NLTA president, Trent Langan. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the president of the Newfoundland Labrador Teachers Association. That's Trent Langdon. Good morning, Trent. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, good to speak with you. Happy to have you on the program. So, again, I try to keep education out there on the front burner. Yes. And for one reason or another, it doesn't seem to get the uh, conversation, the attention, or the focus of many other things, most notably healthcare in this province. So, before we get into some of the issues, what you're calling the hidden reality in the province of schools, yeah. your reaction to the human rights case outcome regarding Carter Churchill? Well, you know, it's any time there's a big case that comes into the news like that, obviously we track it. I, I'm certainly not going to speak directly to, to that family. Uh, they had their own concerns about their child and, and, and fought accordingly. Uh, but in terms of moving forward, you know, support services in our schools are essential. And, and unless these children get the supports they need, we know full well uh, that they're not going to meet the maximum outcomes that they, we'd like to see for them. So as teachers, we, we, uh, we, we would love, love to see greater resourcing in the system. Okay, so um, we talk about healthcare worker shortages all the time, and so we should. Yep. What yep. is it like in the province of schools? Because at the beginning of the school year, we always have the similar conversation about are all the teachers that need to be in place in place on time? Are all the additional support staff in place on time? Are we short teachers, whether it be substitutes or uh, homeroom teachers or math teachers or French, te- French teachers? Where are we? Right. And uh, first of all, Pat, I want to say thanks to you and to VOCM for, for keeping education issues on the forefront. Uh, we know full well that health care issues uh, for every single uh, uh, member in this society right now is, is most likely number one, given the you know, shortages of, uh, uh, of nurses and so on and short uh, uh, beds closed and, and emergency rooms closed. Uh, but what people need to start realizing is education is certainly right up there, but it's a different conversation. It's right up there with healthcare because unless we start investing right now, we're not going to see any major any major improvements to a system that is under major major stress. I'll just read you a couple of quick quotes that I, I jotted down this morning from two separate emails I got from teachers. Um, uh, she had said to me, "It's stressful, and the stress is showing in the students too." And then that's that's one of them. Uh, what we're finding, we're, we're seeing shortages uh, that are so immense, but yet. Not quite enough to close the school down. On, on Monday, uh, I think VOCM would have uh, would have reported that uh, a school on Fogel Island had closed uh, for the day due to a lack of uh, teachers. And uh, we're, we're seeing that every single day in the province that we're coming right to the cusp of, of almost needing to shut these schools down. Uh, I'll read you another quick quote. Uh, uh, this uh, particular principal said that this year's next level of shortage, November to December of 22, were terrible months as we were short most days for seven to eight weeks. We will be short anywhere from two to three and up to nine to ten teachers per day. So just think about that, Pat. If you've got a, a staff of 50 teachers and you're short 10, 10 teachers, um, just think about the situation that's occurring there. You, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul every single minute. Um, and how can we meet curriculum? How can we get the outcomes covered? How can teachers uh, actually look to expand and, and move in the areas that uh, that can fully support? And I've heard heard uh, people say that we're focusing all our efforts on our, our kids with, with high needs, which it should be. But where does that leave the average student? Where does that leave uh, the, uh, the student uh, that is maybe gifted in those areas who may need that little bit extra of enrichment or would like to see that. Um, I tell you, this, this pressure that's there right now, our hidden reality, it's, it's, it's very heavy. Yeah, and I've got some firsthand experience with what's going on in the province of schools over the last 20 years. So, uh, do we have any idea how many teachers have reached the, I don't know what the right phrase is here, the breaking point to where they've uh, decided that they need to take a leave of absence or what have you? 
Yeah, and, and see that, and that's the thing. We're, we're certainly seeing increases in, in uh, uh, teachers availing of, of, of long-term leaves. Uh, I don't have any exact numbers because many times uh, we don't know why they leave as well. So it's it's, uh, it's really up to the person as to why they devo- or why they're leaving their positions and so on. But we're we're seeing uh, greater usages of, of long-term leave. Uh, we're seeing uh, obviously uh, these gaps in the system where uh, long-term or positions cannot be filled and they've been gone on filled for a long time. Um, these kinds of situations are occurring. We've certainly seen an increase in, in outreach to for EAP services. I'll, I'll, I'd say that, that that's a given. Uh, that's where we are, and I think every profession is feeling that. But for some reason, education doesn't get the attention it needs. And uh, in this province right now, I'll go back to that first quote. It's stressful on us, and the stress is showing in the students as well. Because I think, you know, certainly a student comes in in the day, they expect to see their teacher. It's certainly in the younger grades, but even so in all grades. Uh, they come in, and they could have a different teacher uh, day after day after day. Efforts are being made to ensure that the same substitutes are there. But if there's a lack of substitutes and you're short teachers, you know full well it's not business as usual. Well, the attitude and the vibe in the room, whether it's led by a certain group of students and or the teacher, all of a sudden everyone feels very similar. So, and if you're a teacher who is going to work each and every day, who has not been forced or felt like they need to take an extended leave of absence or what have you, you do indeed get in your vehicle or, or whatever, make your way to the to the school thinking, what additional work am I going to face today beyond what I normally have as a heavy workload period? You know, there's also the concept that we're asking so much of teachers outside of what they're actually trained to do, and that's to teach, to deliver curriculum. Just describe some of the extra duties that teachers are taking on here now, whether it be in roles of not only extracurricular and that kind of stuff, because that's always been the case, but trying to play the role of guidance counselor and so many other things in the classroom, which is not really what teachers are there for. Well, yeah, if you go back through the years, uh, you know, teachers went into teaching to become teachers. But now I've often used the analogy that uh, teachers have become uh, social workers in many ways. You don't know what's coming through the door in the morning. So uh, teachers have become that conduit to uh, through the school for, for, for the families, the conduit to, to uh, hospitals. Uh, they're to the go to. They're the hubs of most communities. Uh, and, and you don't really know what's going to come your way. We, we often talk about the mental health issues in, in different professions, but the mental health issues alone in children, we know about that. We know full well that uh, Newfoundland has the greatest rate of uh, autism in the province. We know that uh, uh, we have the, the one of the highest rates of obesity and, and so on. So just think about that. The, these issues that parents uh, and children are bringing to schools every single day are falling on the, on the, on the uh, laps of teachers. And uh, inherently, every teacher wants to help where they can. And I've been in situations too where you want to help where you can. And if you are in a position where the workload is is doable, you are able to offer those additional services to say, look, I want to help you where I can. But right now, when you walk in every day and you don't even know if you're going to be assigned to do the, do the work that uh, is on your contract uh, and that you could be pulled any part of the building, uh, that, how can we even get to the, the, the basic stuff of what it means to support children? And that's my big worry here. You know, I know we're an association of teachers, Patty, but um, every single teacher in this province thinks the world about their children. And as a society, we've got to do better in, in terms of supporting our, our, uh, our kids in our school system. And uh, I know full well there's a hardcore recruitment and retention uh, effort being done in healthcare. Same as we've done in education. And it, this is not about a bunch of teachers just complaining and saying we need to do more for us. This is about our society and about our kids. They, they, they deserve better, for sure. The, there was a new process or protocol regarding uh, getting substitute teachers in for the day or the week or what have you. There was a lot of concerns at the beginning of the school year. Have any of the gremlins been worked out of that system? Well, you know, certainly the, the school districts and, and uh, 
uh, and ourselves and government, we're, we're doing what we can to try and uh, recruit and, and to push uh, people into positions that, that their the availability is there. But what we're hearing is a lot of the isolated and rural areas that there needs to be better incentivization of, of getting people there. Uh, we, we've heard of some short-term fixes, uh, but this issue is going to be around for a while until there's a there's a larger vision or a larger plan for this province. Uh, and in some ways, you, you can't compare larger areas to smaller areas. And maybe there needs to be a dual plan or a, a three-pronged plan of ways to address the different issues uh, that, that exist, because as long as we're comparing St. John's to, say, the coast of Labrador, it's not going to work. There's different issues uh, underlying all of it. We, we want to support children, but the experience is totally different. Uh, so there have, to answer your initial question, there have been uh, some minor uh, fixes put into place to deal with the immediate case-by-case issues, but by far the, uh, the issue is, is uh, right through the system. Uh, very quickly, do you happen to know how many teachers are proficient in American Sign Language in the province? That's a question I wouldn't be able to answer. It's uh, Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be able to offer that one, Patty. Sorry. No problem. I, and that's just off the top of my head because I've got the Carter yeah, Churchill story sure. right in front of me. I sure. appreciate the time as usual, Trent. Thanks for this. And thanks for the opportunity. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. That's Trent Langdon. He's the president of the NLTA. Let's go to line number three. Diane, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Um, he didn't um, tell me what you I was in. Anyway, uh, my son went to school for the deaf. He went when he was four because he was very smart. He learned sign language. I learned sign language. And school for the deaf was the best place that he was ever he went to. And he graduated. There was people there. Uh, and unfortunately, they were from St. John's, and there was people there from Labrador all over, and they had a dorm for them to stay, but they were in the right place for their education. Now, listen to um, um, Carter Churchill's parents talking several times. That child should never have been put in a regular school system. We, they've had children with disabilities. Go to the school for the deaf, people in wheelchairs and other issues, and they did go to the school for the deaf because even as a small child, learning a few words and be able to comprehend, lip read, sign language, whatever that child needs, you can always get something good from the school for the deaf. Cordell Carter Churchill was put in the wrong system Definitely should never have been put in a regular school system with his problems. Well, I mean, I don't, fair enough, but we can put Carter Churchill and other Carter Churchills in the so-called regular school system if we give them the support with a teacher who understands American Sign Language. It was just amazing how we just pretended that we were going to give him a quality education because he was in the, in the classroom, but he sat there in silence. It, it's just an infuriating story. Uh, what did your son go on to do after leaving the school for the deaf? He went on to trade school yep. and did business management accounting, and he ended up working in the Confederation building. You know, sometimes when we see or hear about people with one disability or another, we think that, you know, there's no real future for them. And we just kind of turn a blind eye to their needs, whether it be accessibility issues in public and private spaces or opportunities for professional success. Then, but, of course, the stories are countless 
There are major opportunities for people as long as we get them what they need while they're form being formed in school. You know, whatever support, whatever setting is going to be best for that person because there are opportunities that are being seized by people who are deaf, with other disabilities every single day. We've got to make sure that we equip them to be able to be the next person to seize, seize the opportunity. And yes, Patty, and some children, unfortunately, um, I thought when I was told... I'm having a moment now. Uh, my, my son will never even say ma'am. I was upset. It's very difficult for me to accept. My, you know, this little baby looks perfect. He was only four and a half pounds, but looked perfect. And he was not going to be able to say ma'am. And it was really hard on me. No doubt. But that he only had one disability. And I was a person who's very go-getter, and sometimes I won't take no for an answer, so I'm stubborn. Uh, he was tested, and Dr. Edgecum, God love him. You remember him? Dr. Edgecum? Yes. I do. I went to school with his son, Billy, played basketball with him. He took my, uh, the adenoids out of my nose, <laughs> as a oh matter of fact. Yeah. Anyway... <laughs> Uh, he was so, so good uh, with him. And yes, he took me, like, all I had to do was phone him and tell him I had a problem or something. And he would, uh, I don't know, one time, it was on Good Friday, and I was, my son had was having problems. Uh, it wasn't really, anyway, he, he had a lump on his throat and uh, was getting bigger. And he phoned me and he said, what, Diane, what do you think? And I said, well, I think it needs to be lanced. He said, all right. He said, it's good Friday. He said, but that's okay. I'll take your word. Meet me down meet me down outside the aware. And I met him down there. There was nobody there and he met me outside the door. And I just passed him in. And he did. But anyway, that's getting off the topic. No worries. I'll give you the last um, word before I have to go to the news. Go right ahead. Uh Car, poor little Carter, he does have more than one. And there have been children down to the school for the deaf with more than just their hearing loss. They've been in wheelchairs and they've been on the floor because they couldn't sit. They used to just move around or roll around and they'd get eye contact. And like you said, you can get so many words of what they need the most in their daily activities, whatever they need. If they got those few words in, that's better than no words. Hard to argue with that, Diane. I appreciate the time this morning. You're very welcome. Well, you know, some people, you know, everybody is different no matter what. And acceptance of what they are and giving them the best help that they need is the most anybody thing any anybody can do for anybody, let alone a parent. I appreciate this, Diane. Thank you very much. You're very, very welcome. Take care. Your time. My pleasure. Bye bye. Yeah, Dr. Edgecombe put the tubes in my ears, too. I remember there's photos of me going around with uh, my mother's swim cap on. Those old frilly rubber swim caps of the, of the 70s. Oh, man. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the PC member for Steve Porta Port. That's Tony Wickham. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. 
Good morning, Patty. I, I want to start off by uh, talking about uh, how influential the Open Line Show can be. <laughs> you and I both know that there's nothing better than hearing people tell their own stories because that's so important and it really brings it out. And, and so many people in this province of Newfoundland and Labrador right now have stories to tell, whether it's a cost of living or whether it's access to health care. But quickly, last week, you and I were having a conversation about the fact that a tender, an RFP, had been let for a UM resource plan for healthcare professionals almost a year ago, but had not been awarded. Well, this week we found out that they've awarded the contract. So it's interesting that it comes a week after we had that conversation. Now, we still don't know the details of the contract or why it took so long to award it. But the fact that it's awarded, I think it's a good thing, and I look forward to seeing the terms of reference and making sure that the people who are impacted by this are part of the discussion process. Yeah, we chased a little bit to try to find out what the status was, so I'm glad we know it's been awarded. It'd be nice to know to who for how much. Yeah, I think it was awarded to Deloitte, and I think it's in it's over a million dollars. Okay. But uh, now we need the details. That'll be the next, next piece of this. Today I, I want to talk about the provincial gas tax relief that's due to expire on March 31st. Last year, the Minister of Finance introduced her budget, and it just didn't go far enough. And because of efforts of myself and my colleagues and the people of the province, we were able to get the Minister of Finance to change that budget, to actually bring in relief, additional relief. And one of those was the reduction in the gas tax price by almost $0.08 cents a litre when you include HST. Now, that's due to expire the end of March. So I'm calling on the Minister of Finance to make a pre-budget announcement on, on the finance on the new budget, which they do oftentimes, and tell the people in Newfoundland and Labrador that this will be extended, that this gas tax relief will be extended for this fiscal year. Yeah, you know, it's... It's been a relief, uh, no question there. You know, there's always going to be the thought of how much revenue is required versus how much borrowing is required when we come up with the end result of whatever the budget's going to look like this year. What do you say to folks who may indeed have a revenue side concern with the amount of gas tax that's not coming in the door, especially when the gas tax was initially created to fund road, bridge, and culvert work, and now we're expanding that budget to $225 million this year? I would think that some of that expansion that's coming this year is coming from the federal funds as well. But for those people, I would think it comes down to looking at are we larger than projected revenues. We saw last year a significant increase in revenues from offshore oil. So what I would suggest, instead of simply increasing expenditure, look at finding ways to help people of the province with their expenditures. And if that means keeping the $0.08 cents a litre off for another year, I think that's part, that's got to be part of any discussion when it comes to balancing your budget. Because governments are elected to help people, not hurt them. Right now, if you think about the taxes that have been added on, the carbon tax, which I know is a federal tax, but it's a hurting tax, the sugar tax. These are taxes that are put on that are having a direct impact on the cost of goods. And as carbon tax itself, the cost of goods and services coming to our province, when you think of all the extra fuel surcharges and everything else that's added on, it just simply drives up the cost. And people right now are struggling. Inflation is still running at 5.9%. So I think the government has a onus to do the things that they can control to help people in our province. And this 
taking this measure of keeping this freeze on and extending it would, would be part of that solution. And you mentioned transportation of goods, and a lot of that would be food. My reaction to that would be we don't do nearly enough to produce more locally, to be honest. I know the whole 90-10 number is generally just a retail number for the big, big large grocery change, chains, but, I mean, if we had peppered the landscape with hydroponic greenhouses, we could reduce the amount of food coming in, consequently reduce the amount of transportation costs associated with, so I'd put that much out there. With the carbon tax now going to be applied to home heating fuels, and yes, there are climate incentive rebate checks going out the door. That begins in June or July. So, you know, how do you, how do you think we approach that? Because it's fine to have programs out there to support people with financial supports to move away from oil furnace generation in their homes, but that comes with an upfront cost that many can't absorb. So what do you suggest be done there? So for starters, I don't think there should be tax on home heating fuels anyway, even though I'm a revenue side guy as well. So what do you think we do there? Do we have a net family income threshold for additional subsidies for folks who are going to be in a real pickle here uh, next winter? Patty, it's interesting you bring that up because I'll tell you a story that I had a call from a gentleman. He was in his 80s. His, his total income was $24,000 last year. Now, he was very appreciative that the government sent him a check for $500. But three doors down from this gentleman were a couple who, between them, were making $180,000. And they received $1,000. Yep. So the government did no planning did not consider the impacts of this, and they just simply put money out the door to get it out the door. So that's why it's going to be important to target those people who really need it. And that's just not people on uh, on income support. That's people like our seniors, like people on fixed incomes. And there are opportunities for government to step up, make adjustments to the threshold levels that you have in your current plans, there are lots of ways that government can do things that will help people. Yeah, different provincial governments, uh, because during the federal government support regarding COVID benefits and what have you, one, one group in particular felt left out and were quite vocal about it, and that's whatever and whoever's in the middle class. So this 500 bucks is very much like other provincial governments that sent out some money with no real set target or goal but the, for the middle class that didn't get a bit of theirs they got that bit of theirs but in the form of 500 bucks but the example you use is absolutely spot on i know families that had a thousand dollars come in the door when they're doing just fine but they just so happen to be able to be just under that threshold to get some of that that money's where i'm not so sure about that plan uh but anyway i'll give you the last word tony before i go and and that's why patty again i go back to the fact that this eight cents a liter off will help a lot of families including the middle-class families and others. And we, as a party, have voted against the carbon tax increases. Carbon tax is not working in Newfoundland and Labrador. It's simply not. And you think about a federal minister who says, we're going to charge it, but we're going to give it back to you, as you just mentioned a minute ago. So they're going to spend millions to collect it through administrative costs. They're going to spend millions to give it back to you. If you're going to give it back, why are you charging it in the first place? And I think that whole carbon tax needs a review. It's time the government looked at it and said, is it really doing what it was meant to do? Because I would argue it's certainly not having that impact in Newfoundland and Labrador, and it's yeah. simply driving up the cost of goods and services for people. Emissions didn't go down, so I guess that's how you measure the effectiveness of anything. And you have to have a certain target that you either hit it or you don't. If you don't, you rejig your approach. Yeah. Uh, Tony, good to have you on. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Patty.
But All take right. care. Bye bye. Tony Wake, the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. Break time. When we come back, the province's consumer advocate, Dennis Brown, to talk about what people call rate mitigation. And Michael Boyle's in the queue also to talk about the sale of Jerry Squire's artwork. I assume that's the artwork that came from Mary Queen of the World out in Mount Pearl. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the province's consumer advocate. That's Dennis Brown. Good morning, Dennis. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the program. Uh, yes, it's. Um a lot of timely topics you have there. I'm uh, calling about the changes that need to be made by the House of Assembly in legislation to help with rape mitigation. Now, last summer, to put this in perspective, uh, we participated in a review of the Public Utilities Act, as did the utilities and other interested parties, and recommendations were forwarded to a select group within government headed by a former Deputy Minister of Justice. So government has the recommendations everyone made, including the Public Utilities Board, by the way, uh, to change the Act. Our focus in the recommendations were legislative changes to address financial and procedural problems uh, that will assist ultimately with rape mitigation. So we're trying to control spending by the utilities in their various applications that come before the Public Utilities Board. And, Petty, I have to tell you, spending is way out of control. In 2005, capital budgets were heard uh, in full oral hearings before the Public Utilities Board. At that time... Uh, the capital budget for Newfoundland Power was roughly $50 million annually. In 2005, public hearings stopped. Today, Newfoundland Power's annual, public, uh, annual capital budget uh, is in the range of uh, $125 million. So it's gone in a pretty... Uh, in a significant period of time, uh, from uh, 2005, from 50 million to today, uh, 125 million. We are trying to control that those capital budgets that are brought before the Public Utilities Board. Okay, a couple of questions there. So let's go back to rate mitigation for just a second. What type of amendment in the legislation would be? addressing rate mitigation. Like, what exactly does that mean? Well, it has to do with spending. We're trying to put our own house in order. In rate mitigation, we already have the federal government's intervention, and rate mitigation will come in effect when the Muskrat Falls project is fully commissioned. And currently, they have problems with the Labrador Island connection. They can get some electricity down. They're getting about 400 megawatts down. Uh, but uh, uh, the full complement uh, would be in excess of 800 megawatts. So it's not fully operational. Once it becomes fully operational, then uh, the cost associated with Muskrat Falls will go on to our utility bills. That's effectively what's going to happen. So we're trying to find every possible avenue to control spending uh, from the utilities' perspective. The utilities are spending too much money, and it's not been properly supervised, in our opinion. So I guess there's a couple of things there. You know, full public hearings, 
is one thing at the PUB. How do you legislate a proposal coming from a utility about their proposed or forecasted spending? How does legislation address that as opposed to, you know, the reincorporation of full public hearings and all these types of things, which I don't think has happened since maybe 2005 or something. So how does legislation control what Newfoundland Power says they need to spend? Uh, well, with full, full public hearings, we're able to give scrutiny to what their proposals are. And we've seen some fantastic amounts that Newfoundland Power has been put into their budget in the last couple of years, and we couldn't even get a hearing on it just to get a review from a from the ratepayers' perspective. One was uh, spending for uh, for uh, a thirty-two million dollar expenditure uh, for uh, a new system they want in place for customer services. Well, I don't know if customers need that or if there wasn't other possibilities uh, other than spending. You see, the way the system is built, it's more lucrative for the utilities to spend. The more they spend, the more goes on to their rate of return, so they end up getting more money. So the system is built around spending. Other jurisdictions have addressed these issues. One way of dealing with capital budgets is you present a budget of for $120 million. The board reviews it uh, in a public hearing. We all review it. And they, uh, the board says, uh, yeah, you're due something, but you're not due $120 million. So what we're going to do is give you a budget envelope, give you $90 million for this year. You prioritize it. That's what you got, buddy. Yeah, no, I'm all for that's public. Why, that's the way it's done in some jurisdictions. Well, I'm all for public hearings, <laughs> absolutely, and 100%. Uh, last one before I have to go, Dennis. This is about uh, term limits. So I know that you suggested that the commissioner should uh, serve uh, no more than two terms for a maximum of eight years, but interestingly, referring to temporary commissioners appointed based on their pro uh, professional expertise with one specific matter or another. Can you give me an example? Well, we don't have an expert board. Our public utilities board is not like uh, the members of the uh, National Energy Board, uh, who are experts. These are not experts uh, at our public utilities board. They learn as they go. So uh, right now they have 10-year appointments, and they're subject to one renewal. So a lot of them are there 20 years, and it's just too long. You don't get the revitalization. You get stagnation within the board itself. So we're suggesting that two four-year appointments, eight-year maximum. Uh, and uh, we're also suggesting that the legislation be changed to allow for temporary commissioners to come in. Like a lot of these, the complications around uh, the funding for uh, Muskrat Falls and how rates are being developed, there might be various ways to, uh, to control rates. But uh, so... We're, we're looking for changes in legislation uh, which will be consumer-friendly. It's our time. It's 2023. The utilities have had a good run of it. Uh, they've uh, got off carte blanche since 2005. Let's uh, put their, let the utilities come forward and put their spending case before the board and let there be legislation to deal with that spending. That's what we're saying, essentially. And ultimately, that will help with Muskrat Falls because if we can save – uh, or a quarter of a cent on your utility uh, rate, or a half cent, or a cent. Right now it's 12.3 cents. If we can bring that down or control it more, uh, that will assist with rate mitigation, because once the project is commissioned, it 
the rates will move from 12.3 cents. They are now to uh, just under 15 cents. And that's going to be a whopping increase for a lot of people, but it's the cost of Muskrat Falls. Uh, so we need a reset to deal with Muskrat Falls uh, through legislation to deal with the board. Um, we need a rebalance. Uh, we need fairness for uh, ratepayers, and uh, we have to be fair to the utilities, but uh, the utilities have had a really good run of it. So uh, that's what we're seeking from the government in the recommendations that we made. Uh, we made recommendations that will assist ratepayers, and uh, we hope that the legislature uh, will be in a position to pass these amendments now uh, during this coming session because we have to get ready. Uh, Muskrat Falls expenses are approaching. Uh, once the project is commissioned, uh, the expenses will be down upon us. So we have to get ready, and that's what this is all about. Uh, fair enough. And so we don't even know what the eventual uh, uh, final cost will be at Muskrat. But I've got to get to the news break here now, Dennis. But let's touch base again soon to talk 2041. I'd like to talk 2041, yes, for sure. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. It's Dennis Brown, Province's Consumer Advocate. Michael Boyle, you stay right there. We want to talk about the sale of Jerry, Bo uh, Jerry, Squires, Jerry, Boyle, Jerry Squires' artwork. And then apparently there's a funding announcement regarding the Canning Bridge. The Canning Bridge in Marystown has been closed to vehicle traffic. We'll hear from the Mayor of Marystown, Brian Keating, as well. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. All right, let's go. Line number two. Michael Boyle, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, I'd like to share your concern about with Jerry Squire's paintings. Uh, and I'm speaking in the role as an ordinary citizen of this province and as a walking tour guide, as a member of uh, former member of Mary Queen of the World Parish, and uh, as a friend of Jerry Squire's. So I think I have a couple of view, views. Uh, there's been uh, reports in the papers recently in Toronto and I want to make this analogy about a scam of people selling houses that they didn't own. Yeah, some story. Yeah, amazing story. To use the same analogy, uh, in a way, Jerry Squire's paintings are being sold, but they weren't really earned. They weren't really earned. In a sense, uh, I suppose church can legally, the lawyers, and they've got all those lawyers, and they're paying them big, big salaries. Uh, the lawyers can say, well, legally they belong to us, but morally. Morally, this province of Newfoundland and Labrador knows that those paintings belong to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. Who, uh, like I know Wayne Bartlett's, Bartlett's auction house auctioned them off, but did the, the group that bought the church own the paintings and auctioned them off? Did the Episcopal Corporation do it? I don't even know where the root of this is. Well, this is what I'm saying. This would not happen in any other place in the world. And I think, uh, and I want to make one point very clear at the beginning. The victim should get every single cent that, that they deserve. I've been, hello, have, are you still there? I'm just listening. Yeah, and the victim should get every single cent that, that's coming to them. There's no question uh, about that. Uh, uh, but when you think of the lawyers, they get their share, the auctioneers, and, and the whole process is anonymous. It's online. We talked about accountability. We talked about transparency. They talk about uh, secrecy. The whole idea, remember Clyde Wells talked about the process, the whole, it's sort of a colonial attitude. Uh, who are we to even ask? I, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very sad call for me to make here, and I don't feel any, you know, any great uh, love in making this call because, uh, you know, I know I represent a lot of people in this province. I'm sure of that. But there are a silent majority who are not coming to the fore uh, because it's a, t you figure it's a touchy 
touchy subject, but I mean, the soul of Newfoundland has been lost. Uh, I mean, Jerry Squire's paintings really, uh, in a sense, of the church was bought. Uh, perhaps these paintings should go back to the state of the family. Uh, interestingly, Dave said he just took a, a call from someone who said that the uh, the price that was required for sale was not met, so he's not even sure that they actually got sold. Well, this is the whole idea of, you know, putting a value, uh, you know, real valuable things in life. Can we put a value on them? I mean, they weren't designed for your, your living room or my living room. They were designed for, for a, a church uh, and a, a building. And uh, I think people have looked at Kenneth, uh, I think it's Kenneth Harvey's sort of uh, the, the birch tree, the, the movie about the passion. You know, so much, cons- you know, so much of our history is, uh, is involved with these paintings, and particularly the Southern Shore. Uh, you know, with The Last Supper and all the various people, you know, it's absolutely unique uh, kind of treasure that we have, uh, and we're letting it slip away. You know what I mean? You take the Vatican, you know, in terms of all their paintings and all their thrones, one of those would cover, yeah, enough to cover to pay all the victims, I'm sure. Yeah, very likely, of course. Uh, I've been through the Vatican, and uh, I mean, you only see a sliver of what they actually own. How would the people of the province own Jerry Squire's paintings? Because you mentioned the word value. They have inherent value. In, in fact, they're quite dear. So yeah, are you yeah. suggesting that the province buy them and display them at the rooms? Or what do you think? Well, because I, at I, some I point there's going to be money trans, uh, uh, passing uh, through hands. I, I think first of all, you go back to the state of Jerry Squire's would be the ideal thing. Uh, and for them to okay. decide who, you know, uh, what to do, that, that would be in an ideal world. Uh, it perhaps going going to the the rooms, but even the headline of today's paper, famed paintings uh, miss the minimum price. By who? By who? Who are you guys to evaluate something that that is really precious to to this province? And you know, and the whole process of this, and people are hurting, people are sad, uh, and and yet at the same time they're silent too. Yeah, well, I guess like everything else in this world, what those paintings are worth is the same as what my house is worth. Is that's what whatever someone's willing to pay for it? Oh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But 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 uh, I I think it's uh, it's uh, you know uh, a real a real treasure. It's a real shame. Uh, and you know when you think of the you know the money to pay the victims, I saw a report. There were fifteen lawyers in the Supreme Court last week. You know, 15 lawyers. You pay these lawyers. And these lawyers, I don't think they come with minimum wage, uh, you know, as far as I know. Of course not. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? The, 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 the funds for the victims, uh, I realize that's the important thing. But there's no other place in the world, no other place in the world would put up with this kind of, uh, kind, of kind of thing of, uh, you know, you imagine you took paintings out of the, uh, you know, I'm not suggesting what happened, but paintings out of the Basilica. You know, I mean, it's... Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's beyond words. It's absolutely beyond words. And I know a lot of people are concerned, but we don't hear from them. And they're welcome to share their voice on this program like you've done this morning, Michael. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Patty. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, before we get to the break, let's talk about Pharmacy Appreciation Month with the president of PANEL, that's the Pharmacist Association of Newfoundland Labrador, Janice Adu. Good morning, Janice. You're on the air. Is that pot in, Dave? Hi, Janice, on line number three. Hi, Patty. Hi. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Tell us what's going on during Pharmacy Appreciation Month. So we have a few things planned for our members, but first we wanted to, like, come out on the air and, of course, thank all the pharmacy team members and professionals who've been working so hard, over, especially over the last few years, 
and um, you know, give them a shout out for all of the hard work that they do every day for people of Newfoundland and Labrador, um, keeping people healthy, and you know, um, just working really hard getting people immunized and getting them their medications, all that good stuff. So we wanted to make that point first and foremost. And then we just wanted to let people know a little bit about like what's going on. So um, we have a few things for pharmacists, um, like there will be an education session that's coming up this month. So pharmacists, if you're listening, keep your eye to your email to see um, what kind of continue edu- continuing education is coming from panel. Um, but we wanted to also share that there is a, a province-wide campaign for people to be able to nominate their pharmacy team or their pharmacist in hospital setting and community setting for an award that uh, acknowledges them as um, pharmacist or pharmacy team of the year. Um, So that's open for anyone. If you want to nominate your pharmacist or the pharmacy team that you've been working with um, for an award for them to be recognized by their peers in the fall, now's the time. The uh, nominations are open and it's open till the end of the month. Do only panel members get to be involved in nominations for like, for instance, the pharmacist of the year? No, so it could be anyone. So if you're a patient and you feel like you want to nominate your pharmacist um, because they've helped you figure out a drug interaction or they helped you work through a side effect or you just feel that they're very valuable in your healthcare team, you can nominate them as a patient. Do the clinical pharmacists of my friends over at the Medication Therapy Clinic at uh, Munn School of Pharmacy, do they count? Of course they do. They're pharmacists. Of course. Yeah, I'm formally nominating Dr. Kathy Balsam then. Oh, there you go. Kathy's great. <laughs> well, she's been very generous uh, with her time on the program. We do some regular check-ins with them. So this is terrific. So what do people need to know where to go to find out whatever's going on this month and be involved in the conversation or the nomination process? Right. So to be involved in the nomination process, there's information available at pharmacies through signage, and you might get a little bag stuffer in your bag. If you don't, you can always go on the panel website, www.pa nl.net and the nomination forms right on the front page terrific and we will indeed speak again i think there's some news coming next week that we should touch base about uh and we'll do that when the time presents itself how's that that sounds good to me thank you janice okay thanks have a great day you too bye-bye janice adu is the president of the pharmacist association of newfoundland and Labrador. Okay, Mayor Keating, you're right there to talk about the Canning Bridge right after this. Final break of the day in the week. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the Mayor of Marystown. That's Brian Keating. Mayor Keating, you're on the air. Good morning. Thank you, Patty. Happy to have you on, sir. What's the update? Well, it's great uplifting news for uh, residents of Marystown and Bjorn Flinsa. Yesterday, as you're all aware, the provincial government minister, Alice Loveless, announced over $225 million in uh, road construction and bridge repair and bridge replacement. And as he guaranteed us in our meeting we had with him a couple of weeks ago, Canning Bridge has been put on the list for uh, start construction and uh, engineering uh, in this construction season and into the construction season 2024 and 25. So does that mean a brand new replacement bridge is going to be built or they're going to repair the existing bridge? It's going to be a brand new bridge uh, installed on the Marystown South to Marystown North. Absolutely good news because, you know, this came with a lot of complications for the folks in the region. We had uh, the lady on from Grace Sparks House, I can't remember her name right off the top of my head at the moment, talking about what it means for the people she serves and access to amenities. So it wasn't just as fundamental as, you know, well, people are going to have longer drives. It comes with a lot of complicating factors. Definitely. As you're aware, we also got a uh, a senior complex there, family visiting, uh, 
the construct. There's uh, so many people that work on both sides. Most of the facilities are on the north side, and people live on the south side as travel there. There is there was one I know you have one organization, and there's so many organizations and uh, um, people affected by this. It's such a great news that uh, the government came out with yesterday. It's uh, put a, a grim look on the Marystown region to an uplifting, rejuvenated expectations for this bridge. It's phenomenal news. So the work will be completed at this uh, this particular season? Oh, no, definitely. It won't be completed. Okay. This is, uh, you know, this is a two-year, uh, right now, they got to put in their role works for 2023-24 season. And again, as you look through the website, you'll see it's also in the 2024-25 to season. So it's a it's a very long process, as anybody know, to do it correctly. There's studies and stuff. Engineering is already on its way. So right now we know that the money is there. You know, the promise that uh, and guarantee that Minister Loveless and our local MHAs gave us, uh, they fulfilled their promise to us and their guarantees, and that is the first and most important step to getting this new bridge installed in Marystown. Good news. I'm glad to hear that. I appreciate the update this morning. Brian? Thank you very much, and uh, if you don't mind me saying before we go, the residents of Marystown have been so cooperative and so patient, and they, uh, I like to say a special thanks to the residents, because uh, without the residents uh, pushing and helping the council get this done, this uh, this is a great step and a great announcement for the town of Marystown and the Bjorn Peninsula. Terrific. So Appreciate the time, Mayor Keating. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that's good news down there. You know, what was five, six kilometers for access to amenities became 30 or 40. So this was a big deal, certainly for the folks in Marystown and surrounding area. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Roxanne. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you today? I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm doing good. Uh, I'm calling because I wanted to say a big thank you uh, to the gentleman that called in who found my wallet case with uh, my IDs into it. Yes, uh, apparently he was a very kind gentleman. He spoke with Dave, and Dave passed the information along to me. And I guess, did you hear it, or did someone else hear it and tell you about it? Uh, one of my co-workers, because I actually work at the Health Science, uh, they were listening to your show this morning, and they heard my name and the hospital. And she remembered me saying that I lost my ID case, so she messaged me right away. And then I, uh, I called the hospital and confirmed everything with the security department there. So I had to work today, so I told him I would pick it up when I come in to work this evening. Well, that's good news because beyond the fact that someone could have used your credit cards possibly with the tap uh-huh. feature and then the aggravation of even trying to go down the replacement road. So good on that particular gentleman because there's lots of good people, lots of honest people out there these days uh, still. And so he brought the cards in. The security department has them. You, Someone heard your name, and now you're getting your cards back. Couldn't be better. Yes. Oh, it was great. I was actually after replacing a couple of things, my driver's license ID, and I had to re- Replaced that yesterday, and then I had to call firearms and have my firearms and everything put in as lost because it, you just don't know. So, but I'm really glad everything was found and everything was good. And I wanted to say a big thank you to the gentleman who found them. Absolutely. What do you do with the health science, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, I work with the environmental services department, so that's the housekeeping department. Well, you're speaking to a former member of the housekeeping department at the health sciences. Oh, cool. <laughs> I worked in housekeeping when I was a teenager for uh, maybe just one summer when Marilyn was running the department. 
Okay, I'm not. I'm only there. Uh, I'm working into my third year, so. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, it's great. I love it. Yeah, Marilyn was there for over thirty years for sure. I I run into her every now and then at the supermarket. My, for the most part, I was in the medical school where I was doing my housekeeping work. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Appreciate the time, Roxanne. Thanks for this. You're very welcome. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Yeah, <laughs> I was in the housekeeping department. You know, basically vacuuming and swinging the mop and what have you. And you worked in teams of two. I probably shouldn't say this, get myself in trouble. So I was, my partner, this lady, <laughs> working in the med school, and uh, curiosity got the best of me in the anatomy, the anatomy lab <laughs> in the med school. And she came in to find me uh, kind of looking around, we'll, we'll call it. So, yeah, that was back, that's a long time ago now, working in housekeeping at the old health sciences. And it was a tough job, I guarantee you. And, uh, yeah, but it did pay a fair bit of money compared to how my buddies were with their summer jobs. Yeah, I can't remember how much more I was making than most of my pals, but it was significant. And uh, I didn't mind it now that I look back upon it. All right, let's check in on the Twitter box. And it's uh, it's not surprising, but it's just remarkable how many people hear what they want to hear, and then they go ahead and perpetuate their nonsense lies on Twitter, like Randy did this morning, saying that I said uh, quite clearly that, the leak from CESAs was more important than Chinese interference. Of course, I never said anything like that. We might not share the same political views, but spare me the lies, right? The endless nonsense and the same tweets every single day about the same old stuff. Not a one bit of novelty, uh, a novel idea in, I don't know, years now. Anyway, we're on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. Apparently, uh, Stella... The Portuguese water dog, mental therapy support dog, have updated their profile picture. Someone's thinking that that might be a good sign. And we know that story had a lot of legs because it's bigger than simply that particular program and or the equine therapy program that was in place. Because someone asked me, you know, wouldn't Stella and her services be better suited to another type of public or private institution versus law enforcement? And my thought there, maybe this is big picture stuff, is you know, I do think the RNC play an important role when we talk about mental health in the community. You know, community outreach and the role of the RNC in this case simply isn't pulling people over, writing tickets, investigations, and arrests. I mean, it's more than that. They're part of the community, and community policing also is a support-type uh, support related matter, and yes, mental health included therein. Now, It'd be nice to hear from Chief Roach, and no media outlet has been lucky enough to get some time with the chief. But, for instance, when he talks about a predictable transition for Stella, in this case, is that the, now the primary role is dealing with members of the force who need some attention to their mental health, their mental well-being. Fair enough. I think there's an empathetic ear out there if we could get some more detail as to what that means. Have we seen an increase in the number of officers needing some additional support, needing some additional services? If so, we have to get it to them. Of course we do. So, you know, there's always going to be more to these types of stories than we generally get to hear uh, on the public airwaves, but it would be great to know exactly what's going on. And, you know, another quick comment on that front is, so let's say there's more need for Stella inside headquarters. Fair enough. But that also doesn't necessarily jibe with the fact that for six months, every single request from every single community organization was denied. So... Something changed beyond a predictable transition, if you ask me. All right, our email address is openline.fiosm.com. A bunch of doozies flew through that particular inbox today. Let's have a final check of the morning before we say goodbye. And that's regarding the carbon tax. You know, and again, I know it's a controversial topic, but the whole business about 
you know, whether or not it's working, and I think that's got to be the first and primary conversation because if it's not, and if we're not seeing any type of reduction in emissions, then we have to go back to the drawing board. But this, if we're being honest with ourselves, this is straight up the politics of it because it is not that long ago that the carbon tax was the preferred choice with any attention to climate change-related matters it was the choice of the Harper Conservatives. But now that it's a federal Trudeau liberal implemented tax, now it's the dumbest thing and the worst thing of all time. So what we need to do is to come up with the finest strategy that we can that deals with the largest emitters and or, yes, individuals, because what's currently in place really is not working. I mean, don't take my word for it. Look at the emissions report that just recently came out. All right, good show today. We will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.